Today's episode is with Kareem Hajazi. Kareem is a serial entrepreneur, a professional photographer by training, but most relevant to today's show, he's also a fellow security expert. We dive into his background in industrial espionage, explore the world of malware, and landed on a lot of the biggest issues with keeping people and companies safe online. If you're not familiar with this world, it may feel a bit alien, but this is a great example of the kinds of conversation I've wanted to make public since this podcast's inception. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Kareem Hajazi. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today I have with me Kareem Hajazi. How are you, sir? I'm great, Arsenic. Good to see you, man. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Uh, how was the drive? Everything good. okay? All good. Beautiful yeah. weather. Yeah. You know, nice Texas heat. Yeah. Geez. We came up from Houston, right? Yeah. Is that right? It's a little hotter. Yeah. Is it? Right. Yeah, yeah. I think it was 90 something. You oh, know, okay. Tends uh, to live that way. Yeah, yeah. About the same, I guess. Close. Um, so you have the distinction of being my very first security guest. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Everybody else well, is thank you. kind of tangentially around it maybe, but not doing anything close to what you and I do for a living. Very cool. Thank you. Honored. Um, well, I think one of the interesting things about the security industry, for those who don't live in this world, yeah. it, it's it's very different. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like being in a band. Like, just because you played a guitar doesn't mean you know anything about drums. You know well what I mean? Well said. <laughs> well said. It really does take a lot of different disciplines mm-hmm. uh, for the audience. My background would be web application, browser, some network stuff. You are more like in the malware and mm-hmm. DFIR space, right? Right. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Adversarial pursuits, you know threat actor, threat, threat intel. Right. So tell me a little bit about how you got started. I think uh, it would be useful for the audience to know a little bit about your background. Like how'd you, how'd you decide to get into this industry? How'd you get to be where you are? Absolutely. And like most, I had no idea or intention to get here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we both know that, how that goes. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, about half, half, half fall into it. The other half, like, this is cool. I'm going to do this. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And a lot of where I came from was fundamentally around, uh, believe it or not, competitive intelligence. So in the late 90s, I had a consultancy. There's a whole story of how I got there. Mm -hmm. But I think for the purpose of this story, we'll start start there because... Sure. The David Copperfield, I was born, all that, a little bit too hard, too much to, to go into. Mm-hmm. But um, the competitive intelligence space was really interesting because that was really around getting information on behalf of a customer. So mm-hmm. it really was more on the dark side of things. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, in the late 90s when I was involved in that, this was less computer-oriented. It was much more social engineering. It was a lot more... And so we, we're yeah. going to have to go slow for the audience. They may oh, not know yeah. these words. <clears throat> I just realized we didn't explain what DFIR is, mm. and they, they're they probably not going to know what social engineering is. Well said, yeah. So let, let's, uh, let's, try, let's try that slow. Yeah. So at least with social engineering, this is, as it may sound, it's taking... Uh, the ability to convince people methodically through a series of trust exercises effectively to get them to believe you. It's what the, it's sort of what intelligence agencies do to build assets. You maybe hear those terms. Professional lying. Professional lying. <laughs> there we go. Let's get straight to it. And when you get very good at that, you can elicit an immense amount of information. And a lot of it is pivoting on human conditions like ego and, you know, getting people to talk about themselves and sharing a lot of information, just like I'm and doing shame. right now. Shame is another big one. Literally what our snake's doing to me right now. I'm yeah. sharing all these details <laughs> about myself, but basically that's what that is. And shaming is a good one. And, uh, the whole plan there was to essentially collect information, collate it, index it, organize it, and then deliver that to the client so they can make a really powerful decision for profit mm-hmm. really. And then you decided that from there you wanted this is cool. I'm going to yeah. start doing this. Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. it was a dream. And I, I kind of fell into a project that led me down my first operation that allowed me to get a very, very hard to get a hold of bid for a large project for a client against their competitor, mm-hmm. allowed them to win a, a deal. And I was hooked. 
mm-hmm. I was in I was in heaven. Um, I didn't know necessarily how I was going to repeat that. I knew that the process was very unique and specialized and took a lot of thinking and ingenuity. But just sure. like I'm sure you would agree, many of us kind of find a natural proclivity to be able to do these kinds of things. And I just went with it. And um, I don't, I don't think a lot of people are going to really understand what that means. Can you, yeah. can you spend a little bit more time on that? Yeah. Like wh- what do you think it takes to do what you do that mm-hmm. most people either just don't have or don't know that they have? Absolutely. So what I thought I was going to be when I was very young was much more of an artistic, some sort of creative. Mm-hmm. And I did pursue that angle sort of professionally. I have a degree in photography out of all things, right? Mm-hmm. And no one would ever guess that now. Sure. I do. I have followed up on it now. Many years <laughs> later, I bought a cool camera and I've been taking cool <laughs> pictures. But ultimately, uh, that creativity is what's made me really good at this job, unbelievably. But it all came very naturally to me because I think very much like what an adversary might think like. And I'm, I'm fast forwarding dramatically to where I sure. landed now. But in the early days it was very natural for me to think about all the ways that things could be thwarted or uh, circumvented. And I'm not talking about just on a computer front. In fact, you're far more of that type of individual than, than I am in, in my knowledge, but mm-hmm. the human condition and, and the fact that there's always chinks in the armor or kinks in the armor, depending how you pronounce it, <laughs> uh, allows you to get into these things. And I was in the middle East when I was doing this and I was in places like Dubai, I was in Europe. Uh, laws were un, un, they were not there for this kind of thing. You could go around and you could ask people information very fluidly and you could then leverage it. And it was, it was just an ex- exciting thing for me. So I had a natural ability to kind of pivot from one thing to another very quickly and say, well, that worked. Let's try this. And that worked. Let's add to this. And it kept building and building and building. And eventually I was able to formulate a fairly cohesive system that I could then get other people to, to help me with. And I built a small team the initial team that I had was probably about four to five people that all had a unique skill set in the process. And so ultimately I, I enjoyed that team building is another part of this that I found interesting and inspiring people to kind of run down a path and collectively pursue an angle. All those heist movies and, and crews going together to get something are, are kind of what I think motivated me sure. in a big way. It's a lot like magic. And I mean mm. like the actual like magician type magic. Right. Um, it's, you know, there's the pledge, you mm-hmm. know, like, oh, we're here to do this thing. And then there's the turn where you have this like, oh, this little sleight of hand thing happened. Yeah. And then the prestige where you've just stolen all of this information um, in the exact same way, where if you know enough of these tricks, it really starts feeling like magic. Like, sure how does. is this happening? How is this person just totally destroying our company? Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what it was for a lot of the folks that unfortunately were the, I'll call them victims of our efforts back in the good old days of, of competitive intelligence work, because they had no idea how it could have possibly gone from a closely guarded secret to ultimately being in the hands of the competitor. But little did they know over the course of multiple weeks and through various interactions with different people and the process that I put in place where one person would gather enough information to share with another person that would then use that information to get even more information that would then be leveraged to even a third, those things become very hard to track pattern. Sure. And you eventually get that. You know this very well from an electronic standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. It's in, in my world, it's pivoting. <clears throat> yes. you, you take this little piece of data or this little access point and mm-hmm. then you start just 
going around the edges and it's like, oh, well, I have yeah. access to this thing now. And because I have access to that, I have this access to this other thing. And it just keeps growing and growing and getting worse and worse. Absolutely. In the human side, it's almost worse because there's the what logs, you know? hundred <laughs> percent. It's all ephemeral. Right. It's gone once it, once it comes and out in a it. bar or someone's yeah. been drinking too much. That's and right. Been coerced into drinking too much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember reading somewhere. I can't remember that the CIA said that. Uh, this is obviously, you know, 20, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. or, uh, but they said that every single beer was worth one supercomputer <laughs> in terms of their computational power and being able to break into stuff. Yeah. Like it turns out the NSA's budget, you know, they could just buy someone some beers at the CIA, you know, yeah. get the Sca- same scarily similar today. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. ultimately we're, we're ultimately humans are still the ha- most hackable thing that we have to work with. Everything's pretty hackable too on top of that, but yes. Very true. <laughs> we'll agree to disagree a little bit on that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I mean, on par. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> so why don't, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your um, your run-ins with Anonymous? I think this mm. is I think it's particularly interesting for all kinds of reasons, partly because I don't think people really understand what they are, what, yeah. and I would like to get your take on that, but also I don't think they realize... Um, how they actually impact our world. Like they think about them impacting, you know, companies and governments, but they don't really think about how we interact with them. Yeah. It's it's a great question. Um, And it, and it deserves a little bit of a segue from where I left off where, you know, competitive intelligence was obviously in most people's worlds today, nowhere near cybersecurity or intelligence or anything along those lines. But I made the transition and we can certainly talk about it if it's of interest, but I literally shifted from being essentially the spy to being a spy hunter Mm -hmm. on purpose. I went and said, Hey, you have to believe Mr. Client that there's another Kareem and team on the other side trying to get your information, just like I've gotten the information on your behalf Mm -hmm. from your competitor. How about I tell you what I would do? to get it from you. That way you can build the count. I can help you essentially build the countermeasures, essentially the means to protect yourself from people like me. Mm-hmm. And they agreed. It was unbelievable. They were like, yeah, that's a really good point. We never really, well, we, they thought about it, but they were like, you're probably the best person for us to ask how this might happen to us. If you were to come at us, what would you do? So that led me down a really interesting path ultimately into cybersecurity. And fast forwarding into the 2011 timeframe, mm-hmm. I'm now at the helm of a company that has devised a way to collect um, information from companies that have already been infected by malware. And what that allowed me to do was share that information back to these organizations, unbeknownst to them that they were hacked, and then they could take action on it and clean up. Now, the part of this apparatus or this piece of the, of the puzzle that we were going after was called a command and control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure the, the listeners maybe have heard of denial of service attacks. Uh, that's probably a term yeah, fairly. Yeah. Uh, well, for those who don't know, why don't mm-hmm. you just do a quick primer on command and control and denial of service. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just very relevant to the, the mm-hmm. anonymous piece, which is sure. interesting. Mm-hmm. So command and control is literally what it sounds like a military term for where it's a, uh, operator or, or someone that gives commands to an army of, of originally people, but mm-hmm. now machines that are infected with some sort of virus mm-hmm. that are now, that those machines are now zombified and effectively under the control of these, these command and control, you know, servers. And if you get that, that's a one to many attack from a good guy side, because if you get control of the general leading the army, you now effectively have control of the army, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. So denial uh, service. Denial of service. Yes. So denial of service <laughs> is very much 
getting control of many of these computers. This is what adversaries like to do to be able to shut down systems of interest that they want to go after. Mm -hmm. And they essentially inundate the machines with a bunch of requests to where the machines simply can't respond. It's essentially like me calling Arsenic's cell phone incessantly from many, many numbers all at once to where he just eventually turns the phone off because... Uh, That's distributed denial of service. Thank you. DDoS. <laughs> well said. Yes. Well, I, I think this is these are names that might people might have heard but yeah. don't quite understand. It doesn't what they resonate are. Yeah. clearly. Yeah. 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 So it's worth doing the little Yeah. And and you bring up a good distinction because what we were interested in were the distributed ones, which were ones where machines or computers all over the world were all being leveraged and and pointed, if you will, t- training their crosshairs onto a single environment of some kind. Mm-hmm. And that distribution makes it very hard to manage. Sure. It's, it's something that really is still a challenge today in many cases, because you don't know whether the incoming calls legitimate or malicious. And so they essentially have to shut everything down, which then shuts out good guy requests and bad guy. It's a, it's a hugely, ma- it's a massive impact on the business. Yep. So anonymous, um, Guys wearing the Guy Fox masks. I think that's what people know them as from the media. Mm-hmm. Um, hacker Collective, um, and I say Hacker Collective, and I think you and I, and I would, I'm venturing to guess that we're careful. I'm careful about using that term because not everyone part as that's part of this group are what we'd consider definitive hackers. There's certainly some talented folks in the mix. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of what we'll call script kiddies, people that are a little bit more like wannabes that want to be part of something. And then there are people that have no idea what they're doing and they're downloading kits. Mm-hmm. And watching YouTube to do things. And they consider themselves part of this. This non-kind of cohesive group that doesn't seem to have a proverbial leader. And it it has some sort of, I guess, base tenets. And I suppose some sort of ethic and code is what they are. Now, I certainly know a lot of folks at, at Anonymous. And I agree with some of their methodology because they're very definitive in their pursuits. They're, they're all for things like pursuing... Uh, pedophilia. And, and I think that's wonderful. Now I'm not a big advocate of, of vigilantism. I can't say the word vigilantism. <laughs> Let me get that out right, right. But I, but I do think there's value in being able to disclose and unearth some of what's going on to then have, uh, you know, a, more of an authority pursue it. Then there are the more weaponized contingents of these groups that get a little bit blood drunk, in my opinion, with mm-hmm. the power that they maybe feel like they have. Sure. Lulsec, which is that, uh, subset, um, uh, Splinter cell, mm-hmm. however you want to term it. Yeah, that's who I ended up tangling with in 2011. The ditto. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, which I didn't know actually until one of your other podcasts. I know, I know. Uh, it's not a. There's a couple stories I have been careful not to mm-hmm. telegraph too much um, over the years, and yeah. I'm sort of getting in that place now where you know enough time has elapsed that things have kind of calmed down. Yeah. That, you know. A lot of people have been arrested, so it's kind of like, you know, what are they going to care now? It's it's Mm -hmm. so much time has has, uh, elapsed. But when you, um, so Lulsec, for those who Mm -hmm. don't know, they they were specifically targeting security people. They were. Almost entirely. I mean, they were were also trying to take down the FBI and CIA Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. Um, pretty, Pretty silly. And they actually did launch a denial service attack against the FBI at one point. If I remember. They did. Yeah. That yeah. was uh, unwise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and not then very, uh, not very bright. Not very bright. And so eventually they uh, compromised uh, Stratfor, um, mm-hmm. which is how our sort of worlds collided on that side of the fence. Although we didn't right. know it at the time. No, um, I had no idea. Yeah. And then um, the main guy, um, um, Hector, it was, um, um, I forget his last name. Um, his name was 
Why is it gone? Yeah, I know. <laughs> his, his, his handle was Sabu. Yeah, Sabu. Yeah. Uh, I forget his last name. Uh, Hector something. Someone can put mm-hmm. it in the comments. Uh, but Sabu got flipped by the FBI, uh, right. caught and flipped. And mm-hmm. so he was telling people what to go do, and which sounds a little like entrapment, but I don't know, maybe not. And he um, effectively, uh, more or less, got his entire crew busted. Right. Um, so how did you get involved in all of that? Yeah, so three or four months before. So it was actually, it was Super Bowl Sunday of 2011, and I'll never forget my phone exploded and I'm not a massive football fan, but I was sitting with my wife watching and uh phone exploded. About four different people in the community were hitting me up going, did you see what happened? What's going on? And it turned out that was when HB uh, Gary was hit. And I think we all remember that pretty, pretty clearly. Yep. Poor, poor Greg, yep. Greg Hoagland, a friend of ours. Uh, I think, I think we obviously yes. know him both very well. And I, I remember watching this going, oh, this, that's awful. You know, I, I hate, that'd be horrible. It happened to me. I remember saying those words out loud to my wife and, you know, we lamented and I think I called him with some, some support, you know, as best I could and then moved on. And, and then lo and behold, May uh, hits. And in May, our business was doing what it does best, which was looking for these command and control environments and pursuing them. And we did it indiscriminately. We weren't overly focused back then. We weren't today, like for example, and we'll get to this. I'm much more, I have a litany of targets in the morning and we pick the ones we go for by the afternoon and off we go. Then it was first come first serve. It was like whatever we could get on the menu that day we'd go after. And to the best of our knowledge, even today, all these years later, what we figured out happened was that we took down a command and control environment that happened to be the single command and control for a denial of service attack on Sony run by this lulset group that was running that up. And so essentially we took down the, the, the threat against Sony temporarily. They did get it up and running again through a variety of, of methods, but then went looking for blood to figure out who actually thwarted their, their, their plan and found, found us. Now the way they found us was pretty clever they did some some reverse lookups on some DNS and some other things that I don't want to bore people with on this sure. podcast. Sure. But when they figured out who owned the company that did this, they found my company. And this is the worst part of it. They went and did indeed hack into Atlanta's InfraGuard to get my information there. They specifically went in to go dig me out of that wow. for some reason. So basically they hacked the FBI's... To get to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. <laughs> and That's some uh, dedication right there. That yeah, was some dedication. And admittedly, they were able to get into an email account that I had had. It was a private email account. Mm-hmm. Grabbed a couple emails. Things like where I get pizza and mm-hmm. you know, really horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. And threatened me with it. And I knew exactly what they had gotten into. Well, I'll fast forward to how I learned about this. So this all happens. I didn't know that they were going through these iterations of hacking into InfraGarden in, Atla- in Atlanta to find me. No clue. Um, I, I just had a child. I'm up at night late with the little one, my wife. And all of a sudden, one night, my email starts to ding, 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 ding. That, you know, I'll get emails through the night, but not in an incessant right. fashion. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was one of, one of the emails had my, one of my passwords in the subject line. And you know some of the cardinal rules we all live by in this business. It's like, they're jokes, there's pranks. But I'll tell you what, 
you and I are really good friends, but I'd be mad at you if you put my password <laughs> in the subject line, man. So I was like, this is beyond All right, buddy I'll, I pranking. stop that email from going out. Yeah, I'd, I'd call that off. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and it, and it, was, it was interesting because it was said we should talk, the subject line, or the, uh, the body of the email. And I thought, okay. And I went through my head, litany of people that could have done it, that I knew would have, you know, could do it. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have. And so I replied and I said, what do you want to talk about? And then they came back and they didn't identify themselves. This was simply very vague and, and whatnot and asked me to jump on an encrypted chat. I think it was like lemon chat or some obnoxious little thing back in the good old days. Mm-hmm. And they started threatening that they had gotten into an email account. They had a bunch of information they were going to dox me with and that they, they, they claimed they had infiltrated all dox of being, Oh, sorry. Yep. Sharing information uh, that is effectively private out to the world mm-hmm. with the intention to embarrass you know, reputationally impact, blah, blah, blah. Yep. They claim they had gotten into our company's inf- infrastructure. And what was fascinating about their issue with us, and this is where the story kind of tends to shift from the usual story of their, their extortion tactics, mm-hmm. is they wanted access to our database. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see what command and controls we had taken over so they could then have them force multiply their capabilities. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> you're not getting that it's clever and they it's a good said try. it was a good try and then they said well you know if you call the fbi you know we're going to dox you so i promptly called the fbi mm-hmm. and everyone else i could probably get my hands on and uh, we had a litany of people in the house <laughs> sitting and listening and then they said look i need you to continue the conversation and uh, see if you can help extract some information so they basically said look keep keep going with this keep it going. This is, you're the only one right now that's ever been able to kind of have somewhat of a dialogue with these people before and not even dialogue. Frankly, everything's usually a monologue through Twitter that they would, they would use. They'd use it as threats. I'll tell you if, if nothing else, they were phenomenal Twitter jockeys. Mm -hmm. They were really good at stoking the fires and getting people excited about everything. Um, it was soap opera for most people watching this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we did end up locating, uh, Hector in New York Mm -hmm. Uh, through a variety of channels and pass some of that information on, which then apparently got utilized yes, to flip it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it was amazing because, you know, I was petrified as, as any company owner would be, especially for being a, an intelligence and security company sure. to be, to have any kind of smirch of a reputation. But unbelievably what it actually did do was I had a media strategist that was incredibly helpful. He said, look, big guys like Sony and others and PBS and CIA, they're not going to, they're not going to respond. They're not going to go on the news and talk about it. They're going to let these guys yammer on and kind of ignore it. It's policy. You're too small to do that. You've got to talk about this. You can't not talk about it. You're too, you're too small and they're trying to smirch your reputation. So I actually did go on the news about it and uh, I was pretty aggressive about it. I'm like, yeah, I mean, they tried to do this and they're not particularly very skilled. It's Mm -hmm. like a baby with a gun and you know, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And ultimately it drew a hell of a lot of interest into the little company that I had that eventually resulted in the exit that we had later on. So unbelievably, a really horrible event resulted in a very good thing for me. Mm-hmm. I wish I could... <clears throat> bit uh, of a mixed yeah. blessing. Very mixed blessing and mm-hmm. nothing I could have predicted. No. <laughs> or could you have? <laughs> I don't know. These days, perhaps. <laughs> Wiser and smarter now. <laughs> yeah. Is this 3D chess here? Whatever. <laughs> I think that people have a very strange opinion of what hackers look like, how they act, mm-hmm. um, the kinds of things they do. Um, <clears throat> I'm always surprised when I, 
I see yet another Hollywood movie and I'm like, what are they doing? Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I know people who look and act like that and they don't yeah. know anything at all. Right. Right. You know? So, I mean, <clears throat> one of my favorite stories, um, did you ever, uh, read the story of the true, the guy who wrote true crypt? Does this ring a bell? Uh, it rings a bell. I didn't read it. Okay. This is a very interesting story. Mm. Um, so for those who are not aware, uh, TrueCrypt is um, a type of encryption software you can install on your computer. It's heavily used by the security industry, or was at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, and it basically allows you to have something called pl plausible deni uh, deniability encryption, which basically says, um, I have the nuclear codes, and someone comes and starts beating me up and say, give me the codes, I want the codes. And you're like, okay, here's my password. When mm -hmm. they go and they type in the password, it's, you know, your tax return. They're like, no, 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 that's not that password. And they start beating you up. It's like, oh, now it's my porn collection. No, mm -hmm. no, 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 not that password. Okay, now it's my whatever. You know, you just keep getting more and more levels, but you never give them the real password. Mm -hmm. And and eventually it's plausible. It's like, well, I could see why they wouldn't want us to have his naked photos or whatever, right? I could sure. see why they wouldn't want to, us to know about the mistress or whatever, some, some real mm -hmm. shame, but it's not that. Anyway, so the software existed for years and years, and everyone was kind of using it blindly. No one knew who wrote it. Uh, it was just kind of out mm. there, um, and it was heavily used. Very Satoshi Nakamoto-esque. Uh, yes, right? <clears throat> mm -hmm. And so um, one day, someone asked a question, what is this? What, yeah. are, where did this software come from? Like, we all use it. Mm -hmm. Has anyone ever audited this thing? And everyone sort of went, ooh, I guess we haven't. <laughs> we probably should do that. And so someone did an audit on it, and turns out there was a couple of semi-minor vulnerabilities, nothing really bad. You had to be a, a user on the box to exploit it. So nothing really bad. But yet, you know, everyone kind of went, okay, it's time to update this software. Yeah. We all use it. We should all, you know, have a better version of it. So they came up with a better version called Veracrypt and they kind of went along and, and it's sort of just, it kind of died down again. Like mm -hmm. everyone's sort of like, no one, no one like went back and go, what's going on with this software? Like where did it, where's the origins of it? Well, it turns out some investigative journalist slash a whole bunch of security people started researching what happened. And it turns out there's this guy. Um, his name was Paul Calder LaRue. Mm -hmm. And so LaRue was this, you know, security guy, just like just like you and I, you know, kind of going through life. And he wrote some little piece of software. I think it's called like EA or something, whatever it is. Uh, that was eventually bought by um, a company or part of it was bought by the company and he was brought on to go work with them. It turns out he was basically stealing information he was learning on the job and porting mm. it back into this software. Yeah. And so eventually they came down with a lawsuit. They're going to go sue the guy and he fled. He's like, I don't want to deal with it. Just leaves. But he didn't stop building the software. He just more or less renamed it and put a different skin on it and turned it into something called TrueCrypt. Now, you're like, why did why does this matter? Like, why does this guy do this? It turns out this guy ends up becoming one of the largest drug and arms dealers in the world. <laughs> um, I mean, he's arming every single nation state who's trying to overthrow their dictators or, uh, you know, drug cartels or whatever. And he has multiple assassinations under his belt. Um like he's no nonsense, very interesting character on top yeah. of the fact that he's a security guy. So he takes all these normal precautions that you would expect. And one of the reasons why this software is so important to a guy like him and why he doesn't care about owning it, he's fine with Veracrypt taking over, who cares, is he really just wants his stuff to be secure. So sure. if someone ever comes in and starts pounding on him with a hammer, you know, he's got multiple layers of defensibility. The, to me... Although that is an extreme example, um, this is exactly the kind of person I'd expect to see at a security conference. No doubt. Exactly. I mean, maybe not a 
exactly a cartel member or maybe not a spook or maybe not whatever, but so closely related to those things, you would not be able to tell the difference. And then in LaRue's case, he ended up working with the government um, and eventually then busted. And now mm-hmm. he's in jail and probably will stay there for the rest of his life, uh, bouncing between countries and extraditions and all kinds oh, of I stuff. Believe it. I'm, I'm sure he will spend the rest of his life in jail. But this is when I go to security conference and I look around and I start mm-hmm. really, really probing into why people are there or what's going on in the hood. It's quite often something two or three levels deep. Right. Um, what's your experience about all that? No, I couldn't agree more. It's a great story because, um, and, and the archetype, what you started this conversation with, I think is so important because um, I still look around the room at these security conferences or frankly, like you said, film or TV shows. And I'm like, is that still what I think people think this is all about? And it's changed so tremendously from the days of someone that looks like this deviant that, or, or a little pimply faced six year old that likes to <laughs> play on his computer in his grandma's basement. You know, I mean, they exist. They do. They're, they're, those people do exist. They do all the piercings and bubble. But you know what? The funny part about this is that, um, the, the thread of the story that's super important is that there's profiteering there. Mm-hmm. That he and that he, and and that's what we're dealing with in today's world in in a very very mainstream way. The amount of money being made now is unbelievable with this, and I think that fundamentally, when I look around the room now, I'm looking at these people going, "Okay, motivations follow the money with these things," and you're going to find some extremely interesting motivations because we all know the world's moved in such a way where now everything is memorialized effectively in some sort of digitized fashion. And if you have the wherewithal or you can hire the wherewithal and commission it to mm-hmm. do something at your bidding, you're going to win big. I remember a conversation I had with one guy at a conference and he didn't trust me at all. Uh, <laughs> really? he, not even a little bit. So I asked him uh, like, oh, how many people are working with you and your your company or whatever? He's yeah. like, oh, it's just me. Yeah, I'm just mm-hmm. a consultant or whatever. So a whole year goes by. And um, uh, now at this time, he's very drunk. And I ask mm-hmm. him the exact same question. Mm-hmm. And almost in the exact same location even. Mm. Uh, and I'm like, uh, so how many people do you have working? He's like, oh, I've got about a hundred people. Oh. Uh, they're all consultants. They're all, you know, they don't know what each other do. They all write one tiny little compartmentalized mm-hmm. thing. They don't really know who they're working for, or what they're doing. Right. And then I had just have like one or two guys who kind of like put it all together for me. And I don't do anything. I just sort of hand out checks, mm-hmm. um, tell them what I want to do. And you know, they do everything they want. I think, a lot of people don't even realize that they're part of the cog. They're part of this thing that's happening. And they're just like, oh, I'm just developing this little robot that goes off and makes these sure. types of requests to these types of websites. Yeah. They don't realize that you start adding A plus B and all of a sudden that's that's a weapon. That's right. And it takes those people that can see the forest through the trees. And they're usually, at least in my experience, they're not necessarily very technical people. Mm-mm. No, he wasn't. Right. So like you talk about the stuff we were referring to before the, we didn't use the word botnet, but that actually is the mixture of the command and control and the zombie machines that we were referring to earlier. Mm -hmm. The botnets, well, even better, the virus or malware, I'm using virus kind of safely here to get everyone aware of, everyone remembers antivirus. (laughs) Malware, malware is kind of the next iteration or evolution of things like viruses. But um, effectively, um, the authors of some of these tools are not the perpetrators of, of, of many times. Mm-hmm. They're just building it and saying, well, highest bidder, can someone buy this and use this? It's, it's the it's the weapon maker. Mm-hmm. And then there's the person that uses the weapon. And it's a very hot topic, right? Mm-hmm. With everything, whether it's physical or, or digital. 
or cyber. Um, and so what I find fascinating is that many, many of the folks that seem to have the grand plan and the real business scheme around it don't know the first thing about how this stuff works. Yeah, no idea. But they're phenomenal at leveraging it. And they have enough capital <clears throat> to start doing the thing. Right. I mean, oftentimes it just takes a little bit of vision. This is why I think what you were saying earlier about you you can see what the bad guy is mm -hmm. doing. Well, the only difference between you and I and a, as somebody who's doing this professionally on mm -hmm. the adversarial side is not technical ability. It's just they decided, hey, I can make millions of dollars. That's doing right. This. Screw it. I'm going to go do that. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Uh, maybe they never bothered to figure it out, but it doesn't matter. Once you've made that decision, as long as you have the creativity, mm -hmm. you can make it happen. No, and, and you know, interestingly enough, and I think we've all been in, you know, kind of indoctrinated in this idea that a lot of these groups that are doing evil, we'll call it that broadly, are in these places like over the pond and, you know, the Balkans and Russia. And, you know, we're talking about Russian nation state government hackers or, or criminal enterprises and all that. And we can't forget that a lot of these folks don't have many options other than that. Um, you know, there's some extremely poor areas in those regions. These are not the oligarchs doing mm -hmm. it. Now they may be funded by them today, mm -hmm. but the point is that they themselves are extremely talented with very few options other than to do crime. So <clears throat> totally agree with all of that. One of the conversations I had, I was overseas getting courted by a foreign military to go work for them <laughs> as, as we do this daily. as will yeah. happen. It's happened quite a few times now. <clears throat> it was a conversation about, um, um, attacking nation states, you know, it was right. a nation state versus nation state type conversation. It was fairly early in the part of the conversation when they were trying to onboard me, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but you, you can kind of gather, they were trying to seed the conversation uh, battlefield and they're like, well, what we really want to do is protect ourselves from you. And mm. I'm like, and that's that, interesting. That made my head explode a little bit. I'm yeah. like, Oh geez. I never really thought about United States being adversarial to you. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I just don't see it that way personally, but I get what you're, and I can see why you'd be very concerned about the NSA, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, or Tau or whatever, you sure. know, uh, which is the tailored access organization. Um, I think that seeing it from their perspective gave me a lot of perspective uh, mm -hmm. for the very first time. I, I stopped looking at the world as binary, good and bad, and more as adversarial. Mm -hmm. um, I don't How do you, yeah. how do you think about well, it? Well, it's interesting. I, I when you first said, I'm, we're scared of you, when I first heard you say that, I internalized it as their fear of someone like our snake in the wild, unbridled by a U.S. government apparatus no. that could be far more dangerous they than the even United the government. <laughs> no, no, but, but what's interesting is that I get your point, there's though. even worse per repercussions for them when you're a free agent Yes, without, um, not that you don't have uh, a very strict code personally, yep. but if they don't know that, you're even ter more terrifying than the government. Well, and also back then, I don't think it was quite clear to anybody where mm -hmm. where I was right. ethically. And yeah. that was by design. I wanted to sure. make sure that I could float between all of the different parts. Allowed you fluidity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. But now I'm quite clear um, about where I stand on all these sure. things. But I think, uh, I think no, they were definitely talking about the United States government. Mm -hmm. But in the context of... I worry, I, this government worry about arsenic kind of coming and doing something. Absolutely a valid concern. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I've written tools specifically yep. to target governments where I don't speak the language. Right. Because I know I, there's certain things I won't be able to do if I can't speak Arabic or whatever. Sure. Right. I just won't be able to do it. So I have to write tools that can work around the fact that I don't speak the language. Exactly. <clears throat> 
Never actually got to try that one out, but <laughs> never say never. <laughs> but I think that it is, I think it is interesting to think about free agents. Mm-hmm. I mean, truly free agent, somebody who is not beholden to any nation state is actually probably the most terrifying of all. Agreed. Um, well, because they're, <clears throat> they're, that's where you get LaRue's. That's where you yes. get LaRue's. That's where you get, you know, somebody who's just off making tens of millions of dollars doing weapons buying and arming whoever and just don't care. That's right. That's exactly right. And and to now answer your question a little bit more about what I feel. I mean, look, I lived all over the world. Um, as controversial as this may sound, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Mm-hmm. It's just the reality of the, of the way things are, be it kinetic or cyber. Um, you know, I think what's fascinating is I'm, um, speaking myself here, not blind to the fact that we are probably, we being now a U.S. government, uh, type of, um, you know, apparatus, which is proclaimed to be the best in the world, which in many, it it is in many, many ways. What limits it is its own laws, um, in many cases, um, for better or worse. I'm not really here to argue one way or the other on that. I think we touched in the past conversations about things like, you know, Cortis, uh, what's the, uh, Corsair and privateer work and yes. whatnot, which is similar to what you're talking about with free agents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think foreign <clears throat> governments have every reason to be concerned because at the end of the day there, this is, this is a battlefield that is still fairly free of any kind of Geneva convention at the moment. And I think that uh, and I'm talking about under wraps where it doesn't get broadcast out into the public yep. domain. So there's a lot of danger for these other countries to to consider, even if we don't hear about it or consider it to be a possibility. Sure. And a lot of people totally. get roped into it, even if they don't really realize exactly. they're part of the machine. So, yeah. So you had a company and you sold it and yep. you moved to Hawaii and you're like, this sucks. I want to start another company. <laughs> how did that? How that at all? How yeah, that happen? that's that's a, a good nutshell version of it. I was <laughs> I was there, and I sold my company, moved to Maui, um, and started doing the classic thing where I had a little notepad and a pen. And I started to scribble, and then the scribble turned into a sentence. The sentence turned into a paragraph, and then lo and behold, there was this little MVP of something that I never intended to. Um, uh, candidly never really intended it to turn into another company mm-hmm. it was it was an idea and these are the best companies it was an idea that was founded in a problem that i was like is anyone solving this and fundamentally the problem was supply chain mm-hmm. word we hear every day all day now mm-hmm. and what's funny about that is that this is again 2017 just to give some context so we're not talking about certain events that have happened since then that would have made everyone think supply chain security would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. I really was like, well, this is something I've seen consistently. It's something I personally leveraged in the past for successful access. But who's solving this problem? Because it's an incredibly untenable one because you're relying on trust. You're relying on truth, meaning, hey, Arsenic, I'm going to let my kids come over to hang out at your house. Is your alarm system working really well? And um, yeah, it's Chinese made. What do you ask? Oh, well then they're absolutely <laughs> not coming over. Yeah. So in, in other words, I'm having to trust, you know, companies have to trust each other for their, what we'll call operational security. And that's the issue that really exists when it comes to, um, supply chain. Sure. If there is no clear understanding of how that partner's doing, you have no business interacting with them or having any faith that your data is secure either in their clutches or allowing them to have access into your environment. And I thought, okay, this could be really interesting. What if I could 
help organizations see how their partners were doing without any kind of incursion, without ever any kind of scanning, mm -hmm. using a similar methodology that I had with my last company. And lo and behold, built it, and it was startling. The problem that I miscalculated a little bit with all of this was that people were not ready for this. Mm -hmm. They rarely are. Never are. <laughs> I... Uh my one of my business partners, Jeremiah, who you know, yes, um, he's constantly coming up with ideas that are at least a decade too early, and um, <clears throat> so I I feel you, but yet you decided to do it. You're like, okay, this is an idea. I think it's the timing is right. Mm -hmm. Are you okay explaining how it all yeah, works? I think absolutely. I think it would be very fascinating for people who have not heard about this. Happy to do that, and sure. it's good because we already give a little bit of a primer around yep. this with the whole LulzSec anonymous mess. Yep. So in a very similar capacity, but a little bit more advanced, a little more, um, a little more clandestine, to use a cool word, mm -hmm. um, we are still able to actually even more robustly than ever identify um, and infiltrate. I'm going to be broadly stated about this hacker networks. Mm -hmm. We get into them and become part of the fabric of their infrastructure, and they don't know we're there. Or if they do know, or if they do some, think something's wrong, they, they assume it's a misconfiguration. And the one thing we rely on very interestingly is still greed and laziness. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. And laziness it's is great. Best thing yep. ever. And so we're able to lurk and loiter in these environments and essentially watch who they've affected. So we've essentially been able to figure out where the bottlenecks are and the choke points for these communications that come back from the malware they've deployed out into the world. Mm -hmm. So I think Ransomware is a pretty safe bet. People have heard about this by now. Maybe, maybe, maybe. worth worth spending a minute. Worth on. spending a minute. Yep, on. yep. So ransomware, just like it sounds, is uh, software. Um, there's a there's a process to this, but I'm going to just be very concise. Software that's deployed into a company mm -hmm. by a threat actor by whatever method. We don't have to get into that. That eventually finds all the critical machines and computers and backups and servers that exist in these companies that keep them operational and they encrypt it. And in many cases, they'll steal the information first and use it as, as an extortive method. And then on top of that, encrypt this and say, pay me X amount of money and I'll give you the key to un unlock it. And, or and if you don't, yeah, and if you don't, you'll never get the key and you're going to be hobbled forever. And then even worse, we're going to sell your information on like the deep and dark web, mm -hmm. you know, another fancy schmancy term. Mm -hmm. So um, these groups spend a lot of time building tools to go and do a lot of reconnaissance. They, they like to go loiter around and look through these networks and figure out where things are. They want to find Arsenic's computer because they want to get the guy that really needs to be hobbled in the company. Because if you get the janitor, you're not exactly going to hold the company hostage. So they take their time to kind of do that. We collect the information about where these things are all around the world. And what's fascinating about it is because of where we're getting it, that choke point or that sort of central convergence point of where all these communications land, we get to see global levels of compromise. Mm -hmm. And where we get controversial, which is I know where you want to go with this, Absolutely. is that because we can see it and because we mm -hmm. actually are indeed at that endpoint of where all these things call back to, we essentially become the owner of those systems. Okay. So, so many questions about that specifically. Yeah, absolutely. I'll pause there. Good, good uh, yeah, this, this is a great place to, to start really digging in. Yeah. So first of all, where's the ethics in mm. being part of a crime? I mean, you really are, you're not stopping the crime. Right. I mean, you could theoretically inform someone to stop the crime, but you're not doing that. Right. <clears throat> you're clearly aware of it happening. So right. 
how do, how does that is for someone who has no background sure. in this, they might be going, wait, 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 wait. You what know the this? heck? Yeah, yeah. So can you how, yeah. how do you how do you justify that? How do you think about that? It's a very good question. So think of this as long-term coverts from say the DEA that that put agents into cartels. Those agents have to do some pretty heinous things sometimes just to continue to collect the intelligence so they can finally get to the underlying leaders and drug lords and all that. There's a fair bit of effort to go in and work your way up the chain effectively to get to where something can be curative rather than band-aiding a cancer. Sure. So we've had that question every day, really, all day people, since we started this people company. People do ask the question. Yeah. Interesting. Well, why don't you just take it down while you're in there? Mm-hmm. Because we're just taking down a small portion of this thing. We see it actually happen from a law enforcement perspective. Every now and then you'll hear, if you're in the in the industry for the most part, I don't think you hear about it mainstream-wise, every now and then something may hit mainstream media that the the feds took down this big operation and it's gone. They managed to go and get U.S. marshals to march into mm-hmm. into data centers and they pulled these machines out of racks. It's very, very dramatic and very, you know, fireworks and you know, we kind of all sit there and go, that's, that's good. I wonder where the adversary is already set up somewhere else mm-hmm. because that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, you know, a couple months later, they're back up and running probably even more effectively than before because that telegraphing really like think about it from a boxing mm-hmm. match. That telegraphing is exactly what makes the bad guys better. Yep. Our ability to loiter and stay in a surreptitious state inside their environment actually instills a level of concern and fear for them because if we can unearth and illuminate their whole operation from the inside at the right time, then we actually are curative and not simply addressing the symptom. I remember once upon a time, um, there was some malware, I think it might've been code red or something Mm -hmm. uh, back in the day. It had infected um, a lot of machines at that point. It was very, it was probably one of the most destructive pieces of code out there. Yeah. It's either that or SQL Slammer, one of the two. I can't mm, remember now. Both horrible. Uh, both horrible. Um, but anyway, yeah, the Senate um, mail server was mm-hmm. compromised, and I could see it from where I was um, located. And so there was a lot of people like, well, we could easily reverse this. Just write a piece of code that goes and infects everybody and patches them. Yeah. And my take on it, and, and I vehemently told them, do not do this, is you have to be really clear on what you're doing with this patch if you're going to do this. Yep. Like really clear. Because if you accidentally run a patch, mm-hmm. that that patch accidentally deletes everything, you've mm-hmm. just deleted all of the Senate's email. <laughs> yes. Uh, which I have a feeling they'd be a little annoyed with. <laughs> it's so funny. I have a parallel story, and I wonder, wonder if it was the same piece. Of, well, you said Core Flood and, and SQL Slammer. This one is Core Flood. And Core Flood had gotten into hospitals and it had infected uh, old Windows machines that were not updated that were running life support systems. And they had done exactly what you said. They had found a kill switch to have it remove itself. And it was actually part of the software that was written by the actual adversary because what they built it for was so they could, when they got the job that they wanted done, they could remove all traces of it, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. What was problematic here was that no one reviewed the kill switch code. Mm-hmm. They just trusted the adversary mm-hmm. wrote it well. Right. Not a good idea. Right. Because what it did was it removed the network stack of the machine that it was on <laughs> and took the machine offline entirely, which actually in turn could kill people sure, of course. on life support systems. So yeah, this is an issue that's still today a challenge. This whole lawful intercept into the environment. I mean, it, 
it's a great idea in principle, but to your point, unless you know all of the ramifications and all the permutations of what could happen, you're really running a really risky operation. On the flip side, <clears throat> there was a someone anonymous mm-hmm. uh, compromised 1.5 million routers mm-hmm. um, using Mirai. Um, I think this was Karna bot, botnet. Karna back, yeah, yeah. Um, and so Karna basically was just they tried three or four or five just random passwords, mm-hmm. and it worked. 1.5 million times. And yep. so these are not machines. These are entire networks they've compromised. Oh, yeah. Bottlenecks again. <clears throat> and then they ran an analysis from that location, wherever it was, uh, basically just enormous ping sweeps, I think, is what it was doing, uh, on the entire internet. Made these beautiful graphs, like these wonderful, you could actually see the, the machines coming on and off at, at mm-hmm. nighttime. It was just really beautiful. A lot of right. really interesting artwork. research. Yes, uh, really beautiful <laughs> artwork. And then they reversed the whole thing. Just turned the whole thing off. Wow. Um, that, to me, strikes me as like, okay, there is a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we feel uncomfortable with it, but yeah. maybe there is a way to just say, pull the plug and just, you know, make everybody secure all at once. Not that it would yeah. permanently make them secure in all ways, but sure, that's sort of the counterpoint. Well, um, yeah, no, and it's interesting mm-hmm. because... Um, Harkening back to our story about LulzSec wanting to get access to our infra- what we had controlled at that time, mm-hmm. and I mentioned that term force multiplying capabilities. That idea didn't fall flat with everyone else. This is exactly what everyone wants with our capabilities because, frankly, if you can, well, let's put it this way. If we figure out there's an adversary that has set up shop to impact critical infrastructure within the U.S. and we're able to identify that infrastructure and deliver that those access points to that Mm -hmm. to the appropriate authorities they can throw the proverbial digital grenade down that pipe and destroy whatever's on the other side of it in theory there's a lot of complications again similarly but to your point there there's there's value in being able to loiter and lurk inside something for an extended period of time because it illuminates the entire network excuse the pun sure that's there. And so w- there is a bit of a greater good play. I wanted to kind of continue that answer, which sure. is, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of casualties in the, in the interim between the time that we identify something and when we ultimately maybe deliver the, the information for actioning. And sometimes we never do because there's no one to take that action to your point. There's so people, there's so many people that are so reluctant to actually take action on something that's deployed because of legal reasons, technical reasons, just it's just very very complicated issue um but where this lands with with my company what i wanted to do was when i started to explain this to my friends in the industry when i and they had that same question of like that's pretty rough man you're gonna start talking to companies (laughs) about other companies and their failures their dirty laundry you're really gonna do that i'm like hey do you watch do you watch um the walking dead and they're like yeah this is back when walking dead was kind of big sure and I said, okay. Filmed here in Texas, by the way. Yeah. Largely. Exactly. Some, some in Georgia, I guess, too. Mm-hmm. And then I said, okay, so do you, when you watch that show, do you, like, are you vying for the people that are not infected to continue to get away and, and get away from all the zombies? Or are you trying to heal all the zombies in this show? I, I, I agree. Both, is, both are very valiant and noble causes. But what are you really doing here? And they're like, oh, well, yeah. Every time, you know, the, the, good guys get away or the humans, sorry, get away. We're like, Oh, stay safe. Stay here. Yeah. I'm trying to keep people from getting infected from partners that have become zombies. Mm -hmm. So there is a really noble cause here. Now, am I being a little heartless about the zombified organization? Yes. But in order to protect 
non-zombified organizations, I have to let them know about the zombie that's right by them. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. That is a great answer. But if I'm looking at you, the adversarial part of me, I'm saying, okay, why isn't the government just siphoning up this data and just say, give me Mm -hmm. a license to Russia. Give me a right license to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Give me a license to all these nation states. Like you must get approached. You have to get approached by some very senior people who are just drooling over this data. Yeah. Those that are just listening and not watching the YouTube version is probably seeing my face right now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's uh, it is, it is not an uncommon situation for me. And are you willing to talk like how, how, how does that conversation end up going? Do you like, okay, here's the keys to this entire subnet or are you? So I have to obviously, um, you know, I'm an American citizen. I'm patriotic to this, this country. So I, and uh, company and company, (laughs) it was was like company country. Um, so obviously I, I certainly work with, with my chosen, you know, um, you know, path here, which mm-hmm. is indeed a patriotic pursuit. However, even there, there are limits to what I feel is appropriate because in many cases, I'm not entirely sure which agenda is one that is appropriate because as I think you maybe know, you certainly know, uh, but people listening, the government is not a simple one track focused. They all have their mission, all collectively agreeable on what they want to do. Law enforcement doesn't know what the intelligence community is doing. The intelligence community doesn't know what each other are doing sometimes. And I get requests from various groups at different times. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, I can say without getting into too much detail, I've probably helped one intelligence community member probably find something that maybe another intelligence community member actually set up to make it look like it was an adversary Mm -hmm. and ruined operations on behalf of so the conflict and I, and they'll not share back with me. They won't be like, look, that's my operation. Don't touch it. Never in a million years will they tell me this. It seems like you need an intermediary who's just like all these requests go through and they can route them properly. And absolutely. And, and judge whether or not it's something that we should actually comply with, or mm-hmm. is it something that's suspect that could re- represent a risk to us as an organization or them. Or them. Right. So, and it's someone, in, I, I have yet to find that person that can navigate those waters effectively between all of those groups, mm-hmm. because rarely do you get someone that really crosses the boundaries between LE or law enforcement and intelligence community. They're, they're hanging like out. Homeland with, security has got to be someone over there. Someone. You'd, you'd hope so. Um, the problem is when you start getting into groups like DIA mm-hmm. and, um, and cyber like command, <laughs> yeah, and and like you said, TAO and, and those groups. I mean, there's just even even other portions of the same agency don't know what some of these groups are up to, right? Because they not, can't necessarily trust each other at all. Correct. <clears throat> because one thing the audience may not understand is we have spies on American soil who live and breathe and work right next to us. Yes. Um, so they might have an operation going that that will end up uncovering exactly this person. So you can't trust yeah. even people in your own organization necessarily. That's right. It's, it's very similar <laughs> to what you were referring to when you talked about um, TrueCrypt, where he, he had got this, he had built this thing in a compartmentalized fashion where one group had no idea about the other group. E4M was the original code. There you go. And, and <clears> that's, <throat> that's actually, he, if he didn't invent it, he stole it from the government's method of building things. No one group knows everything. And and that's part of the problem that we have as a private sector organization that runs intelligence operations 
sort of on our own. Mm-hmm. We're task mastered by ourselves, which is really challenging um, because sometimes we get it right and we go after the right stuff that everyone's thrilled about. And sometimes we get it wrong and everyone's really upset about why we chase something. We're like, why are you upset about that? And we can only guess. So I've run across a, a buddy of mine was actually, um, hey, Robert, you should check this thing out. Mm-hmm. It turns out I can break into just about every company on earth. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's usually an interesting way to start the conversation. Let's take a look. And it basically was one of the free VPN providers. Um, they have two businesses. One is uh, give you a free VPN. And the other is sell access to your company to whomever wants to have access to your company's IP space. Got it. And typically what they're doing with it is <clears throat> just, um, you know, clicking on Google a bunch, you know, we're scraping Google more or less. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of you giving access to your uh, server on your personal desktop at your company or at your house or whatever, you're effectively just giving, I wouldn't necessarily call it an adversary, but maybe just somebody who has counter, you know, interests yes. access to your connection through the browser. But well, all he has to do is say, okay, give me one of these IPs, which happen to be at some megacorp somewhere and connects in. And now he has browser level access inside these companies. Mm. And as you know, but maybe the audience doesn't know, once I'm inside a browser inside some company, I'm effectively unstoppable. I mean, I'm going to oh, pivot yeah. and break its stuff pretty quickly. Um, it's going to be bad. Um, the problem is that's quote unquote legitimate software. Yeah. You know, there no one installed malware. That's not what's happening there. In fact, the people who built it may not even realize what it's capable of doing. But it is definitely being utilized by, at minimum, one of my friends who figured this out. Um, and turning this thing into a real weapon doesn't strike me as particularly complicated or, you know. No, it's genius. Expensive or whatever. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with those sort of weird edge cases? Do you just like, look, we're, we don't touch that kind of thing? Or you're like, no, we'll we'll find any time this happens. Yeah. Um, so very good question and something extremely important um, as it relates back to the ransomware conversation, which is just top of mind mm-hmm. of government and industry today. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned this reconnaissance capability that they need to have. They need to send a spy in to find out where those areas are that need to be essentially um, encrypted to, to, you know, sort of hobble the company. Mm-hmm. Those tools, the what I was referring to, those spy tools are not always malware. They're indeed things just like you're talking about. There's one in particular that we know about very well in the industry. It's called Cobalt Strike. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that is an incredibly powerful tool that is good. It's meant to be used by security practitioners to test the integrity of absolutely the organization. And so unfortunately, bad guys have figured out that we can use legitimate tooling, just like you explained, to get our objective, which is to do reconnaissance in these environments and then go after things. Answer to your question is we absolutely go after those things too. And we're one of the few groups that can actually figure that out because what we do is we get a copy of the version of that particular tool that the adversary is using, we run it in our own little sandboxing environment. Essentially, we, we run it as if it we're trying to get it to do what it would do in the wild, mm-hmm. which gives us visibility into where it's going to call out to. And then we attack and infiltrate those endpoints that that tool uses. Whether the tool was intended to be good or not is beside the point in our mind. We're watching for those communications that come out and we've been able to draw these similar to what you said before, beautiful maps, mm-hmm. if you will, of global pictures of exactly where these beacons are coming out of 
it's startling how much is out there that's actually malicious communications from good tooling. Mm-hmm. I bet. So I, you have a podcast, which we'll get to a little bit later, but <clears throat> one of the things I um, that struck me as I was listening to it is you have had run-ins where people have wanted you dead. Oh, yeah. um, uh, I too have had some of those and I'm happy to talk about one of them anyway. Um, I'd like to talk about yours, uh, specifically the, the one about the oil mm-hmm. uh, industry. I think that's uh, a useful conversation yeah. to kind of tee up the next part of this. So, Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a good segue because it's not technical. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's my early, early days doing competitive intelligence work. In between gigs that were definitively information harvesting on behalf of my customer or client, um, I was doing uh, some consulting work. And uh, I was in a Middle Eastern country. Uh, I think I even stated very clearly it was Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Uh, old old times, just like you said, we're past yes. past many years of, <laughs> of hopefully the same person running around chasing me. Let's hope. Let's hope. Um, and I uh, was invited to be part of a of a project that was there to help stifle an oil piracy operation that was actively happening on a regular basis. And this is a particularly unique way of stealing oil and, and making money off of it. And the, the committee that was formed to address it was part of the governmental uh, ruling groups in Kuwait. So um, they had hired, I think, several large consultancies that in turn hired smaller, more boutique consultancies that eventually I became part of a, a even subgroup to that. So I was kind of three layers deep very insignificant in the, in the grand scheme of things. A low man on the totem pole. Low man on the totem pole. <laughs> and, uh, but what I was privy to was the, I, I got to go to the refineries. I got to see exactly what they were talking about. And what, what was going on was oil was siphoned out of the ground, which is considered upstream operations, which I learned many, many years ago. And it flows into these refineries that, it, and then ultimately from refineries and multiple products produced from crude oil or, or the crude oil is refined just enough to go into these big tankers that, that go off the coast of the Arabian Persian Gulf or whatever you want to call it. And these super tankers are massive. We've all seen them, I think, on TV. Um, they are m- unbelievable that humans make these things. Mm-hmm. And they have to, you know, turn engines off multiple, <laughs> multiple, you know, miles offshore before mm-hmm. they can, like, cruise on in. And, and it's millions and millions of dollars to have them even sitting at the port. So all these parameters that go into into having these things um, function. And the oil flows through what is called a custody meter. So, And it's termed appropriately because that is when the custody of the oil leaves the nation state that it's from onto a vessel. So now the custody and the temporary ownership essentially of this oil is now in the hands of the ships. And the ships are not necessarily owned by the other oil companies that necessarily lease them. There's all these ecosystems that exist. I didn't know all this then, but I learned it very quickly. The custody meter that was being used was something called a PD meter, a positive displacement meter. Literally, my coffee cup right here that I'm drinking out of has a certain volume of liquid in it. You take the liquid, you pour it out. You take the liquid, you pour it out. You now know you have two cupfuls. All wonderful and great when there's no other parameters involved, like heat and... Uh, sludge and viscosity and <clears throat> cooling and all these right. things that Bubbles I had to, in it that need to e- be e- yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you juxtapose the inaccuracy of the PD meter with the oldest law in the world, which is maritime law. And the ship captains had 
total dominion over what gets put on their vessel, which makes sense. Even today, it's the case. Sure. If you put too much oil on, it could it could affect the leveling of the ship, uh, inappropriate yeah, ballast, totally. and or all these things. Explosives or all kinds of things. Millions and there's all, and and <clears> the, <throat> drugs entirely. And yeah. and these ship captains knew this, and they had total control. And so they would say, you know, the, the refinery guys would say, well, we've already loaded X number of millions of barrels or th- hundreds of thousands of barrels on the ship. This is what the quota was. And the ship was like, nope, I needed X number of thousands more. Otherwise, I'm not leaving. And it's expensive to have them there, like I mentioned. So they, the people on shore had no option but to comply with the demands because of the reasons that these PD meters were inaccurate. So the project was find some solution to stop this excess oil from being siphoned onto these ships or being bullied into putting more oil on because what these ships would do was they would leave port once they got their excess amount they would turn off their satellite transponders out in international waters some little nigerian or somalian or god knows what vessel would come out there siphon off the oil and they'd flip the, sw- the transponders back on they go to their destination with the exact amount of oil they were supposed to deliver mm-hmm. and they would pocket the amount of money that they would get from these little pirates out in the middle of the water and you made the mistake of talking about it Yes. And I also made the mistake of finding a proposed solution. Mm. So I found this little company, believe it or not, in the little town of Corpus Christi, Texas, many, many moons ago. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, it was a meter that was called an MVTM. I'll never forget this. A multi-viscosity turbine meter. And what this meter did was it had, uh, it looked like a turbine. It had blades and it and there was all these physics that went along with the fact that it could handle all the different viscosities because oil in the Middle East is not like oil in your kitchen. In the summer, when it's 150 degrees in the middle of the desert in Kuwait, oil flows like water. And when it's winter, which is 50, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, it flows like sludge. And so these meters had the means to be extremely accurate with what was actually flowing through. So it actually would be a way to dispute what the captain was, was suggesting. So I, put this whole thing together. It was probably like a four or five and a half week project. I um, presented one day to this panel. I was very excited. Young guy. You know, I'm, I'm like, this is my time. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't care less. First clue. Mm-hmm. All sitting there. I think this is back when cell phones were just coming out effectively, giant bricks. And they were just tooling around with them and, and pagers and no interest. And I thought, huh, okay. Well, make a very long story short. Um, this is in Kuwait and there's no alcohol there publicly. You have to go to the American embassy to have a decent drink on a Friday night or something. And they had a happy hour back then. I got to know a gentleman there who was uh, part of the state department quotes in the air right now. Sure. As I do that. Yes. Didn't know that then. And who's, who I'd tell lament my stories to and cry in my beer a little bit with them about life in Kuwait and all that. And, uh, presented nothing happened. I called a week later nothing. They were like, we're taking it under advisement. Thank you. Just, we're good. We're good. I'm like, well, you know, I worked hard on this. I want to know that this is going to be implemented. I mean, this is incredible. We found a solution to this. Um, the gentleman that I knew at the embassy, I'd share the story with, um, the next time I had met with him to have a drink, he goes, Hey, how's that going? I said, I'm just frustrated. They're just, they're, there's no response to this. It doesn't seem like there's any implementation. There's no questions. And he goes, yeah, you, you just need to let, let that, let that ride. And I thought, Hmm. I didn't think much of his comment. Um, about a week later or so, I decided to call one more time. I was like, I, I need to get some clarity on this. And I called and I got a different individual. It was like a, a, some, some subcommittee member 
who was extremely rude and is like, look, you know, we appreciate your help, but this is, this is a non-issue. We're not going through with it. Please don't, don't ask us about this anymore. Pretty pissed. I wasn't taking any hints. I think I ended up in the embassy that week and met up with that individual. And, and he asked, he brought, he asked me about it saying, Hey, I'm um, that whole thing about that uh, project. You, you really ought to just leave it alone. And I was like, why would you tell me this? Like you're, you're have no part in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you the story. How would you know anything? And he's like, just seriously, man, I'm just, dude, I see you troubled by this. You just need to let it ride. Um, I ended up, talking to several other people about the issue. Um, and I, I, I can't remember honestly if I called one more time, probably did knowing me <laughs> like an idiot. And, uh, he called me, uh, and said, can you meet out at one of the hotel lobbies and chat with you about something? And I was like, this is bizarre. He never does this. It's like, this is just my beer drinking friend. Mm-hmm. And I went out and I met with him and he said, look, they, um, they're really agitated with your pressurizing of this whole thing. And he goes, I wanted to meet you off, you know, grid effectively so we i could tell you these guys have no interest in having this result and i said do you mean the committee that hired me to do it? he goes yeah the committee that hired you to do it hired you to do it because they figured there would never be a solution found because they're benefiting from this man and so i had no idea that the very people that hired me had hired me because they're like this is perfect we'll get someone that can play the role of a consultant and i can put it on paper that we tried and it didn't work but because we actually had something that did they were like, this is going to be a problem. And then he let me know the really scary news, which is that they had commissioned uh, my removal, mm-hmm. as he put it. And so <clears> I a left, liability, not an asset I'm, anymore. I'm a liability, <laughs> not an asset. And I left, I, left, uh, I left the region probably about you know, two and a half weeks later mm-hmm. for a very, very long time. I don't mm-hmm. think I'd, I'd been back for, uh, I mean, I haven't been back. I've been back since, but it was terrifying mm-hmm. because the issue was that you don't just leave things like this, especially when you talk about the kind of wealth that you're messing with. And this is part of what we talked about a minute ago, whether it's cyber or otherwise, when you start interfering with that level of money, you're extremely dispensable. Seriously, human life is just not a non-issue for many of these folks. This isn't really about ethics. It's more about the fact that there's greater powers at play here that, that and you're, you're just tasked as a problem. Yep. I have similar terrible stories, um, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, but I wanted to highlight one just as a yeah. as a counter conversation. Um, so in your case, they were putting a hit out on you, right? So um, for those who aren't familiar, Silk Road was a mm. uh, very large drug marketplace um, on the dark net, and I never even went to the site. I heard about it. Um, I actually, I think I might've gone there once just to see like visually what it looked like to see what kind of thing, but like, not like perusing it or whatever, just like, Oh, that that is a real thing. Literally just the once. So to me, it was sort of one of those back of the thing, like, Oh, that's something that happens. I'd never really thought about it. Um, and then it turns out that the guy who started it, uh, Ross Ulbricht, who used to live in Austin, by the way, I didn't know that. Yeah. A long time ago. Uh, he got busted. <clears throat> now mm-hmm. the way he got busted was he shipped drugs to himself and he shipped, um, uh, fake passports to mm. himself. Um, and so they, the mail service caught him basically. And, uh, so they busted him with his you know, notebook open with the passwords in it. And I mean, they really nailed this guy. Like yeah. it, it's, 
it's almost more there's no way it could be even more open farcical yeah, yeah. he was literally logged into the admin console oh, on the computer i mean he, it was definitely him right yeah but there's a lot of conspiracy theories about that you know like well that seemed too easy he would be smarter than that blah 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 like all this stuff again didn't really pay attention to it, didn't really care, just more like, oh, here's another bunch of people who are flaunting it in front of the FBI. Eventually, yeah. there's going to go down. I kind of just really really didn't process it sure. beyond that. I start getting an email thread from this guy. Um, Ross? No, from some random person okay. on the internet. Okay. <clears throat> Ross is in jail. Gotcha. And he says, effectively, I know that you're the real Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, who, which was his handle. Yeah. I know you're him. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm sorry. You got the wrong guy. It's Ross Ulbricht. He's in jail. Yeah. <laughs> like they have him. He's like fully in jail and the website's down. I mean, it's, it's the guy, right? Yeah. And he's like, well, um, we know it's actually you. We. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's news to me. And so the more I was like, it isn't me, the more like, well, that's what you would say if it no, was of course. you. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, why do you think it's me? You know, like I'm getting kind of frustrated this conversation. And they had several good reasons. Um, so one was he, Russell Burke was, you know, lived in Austin. I lived in Austin. So mm-hmm. like, oh, well, that's how you met him originally. So he's your patsy. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, that sort of makes sense. Although I never met the guy, but whatever. Uh, I did meet his roommate years later though, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, just kind of a random party with a mutual friend. But um, I'd never met him. So that's not a good answer, but no one would know that, right? Sure. That's It's plausible enough. <clears throat> Second thing was, um, he was a web application security expert. I ran the web application security lab. Um, yeah. so that would make sense. Would, you know, number three, um, my second to last blog post on my old, uh, website that's now down, uh, basically said something like, um, I had considered having the dread pirate R snake as in mm. someone could come along and utilize my name and just kind of keep going sure. forward. The and, princess bride. Uh, person surprise yeah. reference right and so mm-hmm. i was like oh so you could just keep going forward and yeah. but i always thought that was kind of a clever but also pointless right mm-hmm. no one's going to do it the same way i'm going to do it and there, there's no point there's plenty of other researchers out there who can do their own thing so sure but since i had said dread pirate and he's dread pirate roberts and my last name or my name is robert oh, they yeah. you know they drew a big circle around that and then lastly um uh, aside from doing the you know murders and stuff that he had sanctioned uh, he also used uh, a tool called Slow Loris to attack mm. websites. I wrote Slow Loris. Mm. Uh, so I'm like, ooh, that sounds pretty good. good. <laughs> <laughs> like that sound, I mean, it's not true. Yeah. But if you're hearing it and it's coming from, you know, the press or whatever, sure. and you're just like reading it in the Times or something. Yeah, it feels irrefutable. Right. It That's yeah. pretty solid evidence, actually. I'm like, okay. Well, all right, I get you. So what do you want? Um, like, well, we want you to come back and build Silk Road too. Oh my God. Uh, just do the same thing. Do yeah. the same thing all over again. And I'm like, okay. And if I don't, I'm like, well, we'll release this information. We'll totally screw your life over. You, you know, it's basically game over for you kind of thing. I'm like, okay, fine. Give me access. So they gave me access. Um, and so they had already built up an infrastructure for it. And, um, and so as soon as I got in there, I completely destroyed them and figured out who they really were and all the terrible things they yeah. didn't expect me to be able to do. Uh, actually had to find an exploit in Tor to do it, but, yeah, oh, wow. but whatever. There you go. Uh, <laughs> That's a juicy one. When I'm motivated, I'm very motivated. <laughs> that is awesome. You really don't want to mess with me. But, uh, anyway, um, the end result was uh, I gave the information over to the appropriate authorities, um, and now he has a job. 
Um, so this uh, character um, who was part of a cartel or something is now interesting. You know, he's found himself a job. He found himself a job and working for the government. I'm sure. My goodness. Um, so my point in bringing up that story as a counterpoint to your story is mm-hmm. they were using like, we're going to literally murder you mm-hmm. in my case. They're not going to murder me. That was never on the table. That was never even mentioned. Mm-hmm. They were just going to make my life hell. Right. I think these are the tools of the future. I think, you know, mass coercion through death threats, <clears throat> through messing with your life through doxing or yeah. straight up lies. Um, it doesn't really matter as long as it messes your life up. Mm-hmm. Like these are very valid and powerful tools that an adversary has in their disposal. Like they really are. How does that strike you? Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I think what's I'm really uh, that's an interesting story. I don't, I didn't know that one. Yeah, actually. I, I've um, not sold that one publicly until no, today. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, and what I find really interesting in, in, in terms of the parallel, uh, of, of my story and yours, I was utterly useless as a, as a person for them. On, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they hired me because of the reason I was a super young kid that they just counted on not being able to do anything fruitful. So when I indeed did, I mean, and what I did wasn't ever, it wasn't something they were like, oh, well, now this is a very useful being. We're going to keep them around. Unlike yourself, where they were like, you have a unique ability to build something very powerful for us. It would be a shame to, to destroy this work of art. I was a patsy by definition mm-hmm. that did good. Mm-hmm. Now, accidentally, accidentally. <laughs> so effectively, the the interesting thing about this is that and kind of a two pronged answer. Having skills may keep you alive, interestingly enough, because you're now useful. It also makes you more coveted by good guys and bad guys, like we mm-hmm. talked about a minute ago. So yep. there's some sort of this blessing and a curse there. But that's a really interesting warm blanket to have to know that I won't be quite as dispensable as maybe I once was because now I could be probably very useful in, in, in certain events, but that in it, in its, in of itself starts to draw fire. Mm-hmm. You start getting attention for that just like mm-hmm. you did. Yeah. Chris Nickerson's story about going to China always stri- strikes me as one of the most hilarious. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I want to tell that story. I think I, yeah. I should just get him on the podcast and have him do that it. That would be a good one. He, he's, he's an incredible character, but I, I always look at these nation states as, um, and, and criminal organizations like yeah. this that are highly financed, they don't want to kill guys like you, like you and I until right. we pop our head up and just make just help, a mess. Just yeah, just make a mess of the yeah. operation. Because frankly, I think everyone's happier that the security industry exists because there's a nice cover of like, oh, well, we're an anti-spam company. Oh yeah, and we also spam. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> there's exactly. all the, there's all of this underbelly of the security industry that just yeah. I don't think normal people are familiar with, uh, but is very present as far as I'm concerned. Like you, it doesn't take long to walk down the hallway at a security conference and bump into somebody who's doing something nefarious. No doubt about it. And they're pretty open about it. Yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting is that people get blood drunk on their own skill, uh, at times and they, they sort of start nudging the limits and the aperture of what they consider to be ethical out, Mm -hmm. especially if there's extenuating circumstances, they need money. There's whatever Mm -hmm. they get greedy. They're young. Sure. You know, there's a million reasons why they maybe do that. But I think what you, you know, you, you're something really fascinating. Um, I was having a conversation with a group um, uh, about Costa Rica, which for those that are un, not privy to it, this is one of the, f- not certainly not the first time, but one that's fairly well publicized that a ransomware group took the government essentially by ho- hostage. Mm-hmm. Now it's a little overblown of a, of a story, but 
it's interesting because the demands of this group are regime changes. They're asking for political changes. They're not asking for money. They maybe ask for money too, but I don't know. But I know that what made the headlines is they're they'll asking get money for either way. They'll get money either way. Exactly. Yeah. There's a good chance that the incoming leader is is very much possibly motivating them to to do this. Sure. Um, but the power they're wielding is very powerful. And I think that what's interesting is the common person. You said that no one really feels like this is going to hit them. It's all about the big companies. Well, these groups are getting so effective in their methods, like this whole democratizing and affiliatizing the access. Mm-hmm. Think about this, Arsnake. Imagine if you were on the wrong side of this and you had all the access you had ever found in the course of your career now and maintained those back doors and you were now brokering those back doors for money. I'd be unstoppable. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening now. Maybe not the scale that you would have done it or could could have done it, but you're talking about an aggregate group that's now starting to do it. So it's getting to be a pretty prolific amount of access. Mm-hmm. That's part of what I talk about a lot in the industry. As you know, I'm like, I'm not as wrapped up in the vulnerabilities. That is the domain of our snake. Who's going to find that and exploit it and show you where you should have patched something or you should have done something or another. I'm talking about implants. I'm talking about things that probably got there that had nothing to do with the vulnerability other than back to our original conversation, hacking the human, sure. sending a business email compromise that allowed a Martha to click it yeah. <laughs> in HR. Yeah. And now all of a sudden fluffy bunnies just turned into a, uh, you know, another employee in the company that has full rights. Yep. Those are the ones that scare me because those implants stay latent. And then, then what they can do, and I don't make, I don't mean to make this such a menacing story, but now they can implant whatever they want on that machine. They can put CP on it. They can put all kinds of stuff and say, Who's going to prove it wasn't you? CP being child pornography. Thank you. I That's, didn't know if you wanted to throw that out there. Well, I, I like talking about child pornography, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly so, did some good. You get damaged those guys pretty well. Oh, so you I've, deserve a lot of credit I've, on that uh, one. I've definitely done my my damage. So I want to change the topic a little bit yeah. about what is wrong with our industry. And mm. so I want to I want to do it from my side. And sure. then I want you to repeat uh, on, your, on your side. Because I think mm. this is a, a, a fun little game we can play about how broken our respective <laughs> sides of the industry are. So I, I primarily focus on web applications and browsers. Yeah. So websites um, and Internet Explorer or Firefox or Chrome or whatever somebody might be using. Mm-hmm. That's Those are browsers. So the number one problem uh, out of 10, this is, a, this is a litany of 10 separate things all leading to the same problem, mm-hmm. uh, is it seems to me that the when I talk to vendors these days and talk to companies these days, the level, the average level of talent within those organizations has gone down. The average person I speak to is less capable than they were 10 years ago and far less than 20 years ago. Um, which is to say, although there's more of them, much more, many more of them, sure. they just don't know things that you would expect them to know. Mm-hmm. Um, things that we've known for 20 years, they still don't know even today. And they've had this job for five years or That's whatever. That's right. And so that's bad because what that means is they, whoever you're talking to in these companies or you're expecting to protect you, they don't know enough about what the, they probably shouldn't even have this job at all. They mm-hmm. really should be doing something completely different because they just don't have the skill level. Necessary. Is this number 10 or number one? This is number one. This is the very first problem. Okay, good. Because if it's an order, this is a magical one because <laughs> I was about to use that one, but keep going. I love oh, it. No, I mean, I, th- yeah. I think it might dovetail in multiple, no I, doubt. you might see threads throughout. So yeah. So I'd say that's number one. And so number two is that, and that's related, is that the CISOs can't hire mm-hmm. anybody good enough. I mean, 
think about it if you're like a random, you know, car manufacturer. Now that's probably a bad example. It's kind of interesting. Like you manufacture, you know, um, tractors or something, you know, you're a jam company or something like <laughs> no one really wants to work at the, yeah. you're not going to get the kind of talent you need, despite the fact that your security is exactly the same as any one of those other companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the same vulnerabilities and, you know, same interest to nation states and, you know, same money transacting or whatever. Like, so right. these CISOs have a very hard time finding people and they're kind of disincented to, um, to spend a lot of money. So they end up just finding whomever they can. Yeah. They go to the, literally go to the colleges and pick people out. Oh, you, you do CS. Great. You can do security. It's like, what is security? You know, mm-hmm. like they know nothing. So, so I'd say that's, um, they, they can't find it. They can't, they can't nurture it because the people above them aren't good either. Uh, like as everyone throughout that organization average is down. Right. Um, so they're not, you can't really nurture them up to where they need to be. So that's number two. Number three would be, no one really wants to know what assets they have. And so mm-hmm. this strikes me in my little industry, my my part of the world, which is what I do is uh, find hidden assets, things that people don't know that they own. And the reason they don't want to know it is because that's just more liability. Right. Like they already have tons of liability that they can't manage because their people aren't very good. And now you're just saying, you want more of that? Mm-hmm. Like that seems like a bad deal for a CISO, like a uh, chief information security officer, for those who don't know that term. It doesn't seem like something the average executive would say, yeah, let's get more vulnerabilities right. when you can't even manage what you've got now. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that, that seems counterproductive to um, their business incentives. Right? Right. Um, so next is people don't want to run scans everywhere because, first of all, it, running scans is expensive, extremely expensive. Um, and they're already limited budgets. If they could spend the money on anything, they would be on better talent. But mm-hmm. they can't do that for compliance reasons. They have to scan. So, But they don't want to scan everything. So they what they really want to do is scan like three or four machines. Like these are representative of our environment. Sample set. But the but that's not at all a sample set. I mean, mm-hmm. their environment's weird and dynamic. You know, they have... They have um, air conditioners. They have websites on them. They have IP yeah. printers with websites on them and all kinds of stuff out there. So right there, you can't get them to do it. But worse, even if you wanted to, there is no scanning company on the planet that could actually scan every single website on the planet. And I've talked to a lot of very large security companies that do scanning, and you know they shrug their shoulders like, no, we I mean, we'd have to scale out to a level that we've mm-hmm. never even contemplated. You know, the, the amount of data and bandwidth and there's just no company on earth that can manage it, even if you wanted to do that. And then you get a bunch of vulnerabilities back and they're all this thing like red light, green light, like everything's yeah. high, medium and low. But the problem is a, a medium vulnerability on your primary big website might be way worse from a damage potential than a high on some, like whatever, some something sitting under someone's you know, desktop somewhere that's got no access to anything and it's totally isolated or out in the cloud, just a test thing that's no one ever installed anything on. So without the prioritization, there's mm-hmm. no way to know what a high, medium, and low even means in that context. context. Yeah. yeah. So you're there missing you the context of it, which means that people are really just rolling the dice, fix it in whatever random order kind of makes sense. And which means they're not really applying true business risk to it, mm-hmm. which is terrible. Right. Uh, so they're fixing all the wrong things. Um, so, let's say you want to fix the thing, right? Uh, first of all, your people aren't good enough, so you're not going to be able to do that. Um, but let's say you got prioritization in order and let's say you've scanned all the things and you know everything is and let's say we've managed all that. 
what you really probably need is something called a web application firewall. Mm-hmm. It's this device that sits online and kind of blocks traffic and, you know, stuff comes in and blocks it and then you're off to the races. The problem is you need someone to configure it. And we've already said that your people aren't good enough, so that's not going to happen. Which means you need to use a third-party uh, web application firewall, like a Cloudflare or something, um, who has all kinds of other issues, like taking down websites. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> so let's say that you've decided to do that. Um, there is no WAF on Earth that can handle all of the traffic on the entire internet. None. None of them can get even close. So forget that. But even if you wanted to do it, the people aren't good enough anyway. Mm-hmm. So what you need is a company that manages all of these rules for you and just does all the work. So you can probably find a company that's cool enough to get all the good talent and pay them appropriately and they can just sit there all day making these rules. But that's the only way you're going to be able to get in front of all that problem, uh, those problems, leaving only the vulnerabilities that are hard left over for your staff. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not qualified to do those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the last step would be insurance, right? You have yep. to have the cyber insurance necessary to take over the remaining subset of things that you just, your people are just not good enough or, or there's maybe too many vulnerabilities to handle. That litany of 10 things strikes me as completely untenable. There is no way we're going to get through that list. No way. No. How about you? I could add an insult to injury here. Sure, yeah. I couldn't agree more with everything you said. In fact, I would even go in the exact same order for the most part. And I would interstitially add compliance and that being the motivator for them to even bother Mm -hmm. most of the time. Mm -hmm. The fines are cheaper than buying the security talent technology or process to begin with getting training getting it it's just easier to pay the fines and so that that doesn't motivate anyone especially if that's the main reason that some of the management (laughs) team cares to even think about this secondly cybersecurity they keep talking about is finally going to reach being a business problem not a cybersecurity problem we hear that a lot which means it has to get to a board level sure they're, tra- they're talking about getting someone at a board level that can communicate these concepts to a, a business group. You just said it better than I could have ever articulated. You can't even get the talent to do the job, much less someone that can take complicated concepts like what we're talking about and bring it down to a level that we can put into a podcast like this for people to understand. Guys like us are extremely rare that have this cross-trained all-star approach to things because of all the years, the 20, we talked about downstairs, 26, 27, 27 years of time that give us the ability to communicate highly complicated things into fairly simplistic terms, but salient enough for a board to actually take action on. So education's grossly, and not even I'm talking about operational education, I'm talking about business decision education. Mm-hmm. And then coming closer home to me with what I do, um, as you said, you, you zeroed in heavily on the vulnerabilities and the patch management and the prioritization of patch management and uh, all the things that go into when you're left over with even the most critical ones, who the hell's going to do it? Man, what about the stuff that's latently persisting and lurking and laterally moving inside your network that requires a threat hunter and a SOC team and a, all those? You're just you're adding a layer of, of no one's getting an alert that your web server's out of date when malware gets into your environment through some sort of back to social engineering mm-hmm. method. So you're talking about like a upping the ante so much so that when I, a guy like me comes along and I deliver exactly what you said in the beginning, here's more. Mm-hmm. Aren't you happy? <laughs> 
Here's more that, that you don't not, have budget for. I think the audience largely will be surprised by that mm-hmm. or, or maybe not everybody, but I think a lot of people will. It's like, wait, they don't want to know. That. Right. It's like, they don't want to know. No, they do not. And they're not happy when they, when you're forced it down their throat and say, oh, here, you're vulnerable. Well, and get this, you it's mentioned never that, a fun day. No, it's not. <laughs> and, and, and this is where it's interesting. And I, I loved your last point on the insurance play because there's a really kind of cool coup de gras on this whole thing. The chief information security officer is effectively our customer when we're a solution provider or a product, you know, developer of some kind. Mm-hmm. In my case, that is the very person that is going to have their job security threatened by what I have to sell them. Yep. That paradox That's tough. is rough. Mm-hmm. And so by definition, they're going to mitigate, relegate, you know, blame you, blame, blame me. <laughs> oh my goodness. I've gotten to know the FBI so well <laughs> over the last 15 years doing what I do, man. I bet, you know, which has been a blessing in some ways because they're like, Oh, it's just cream. It's cream. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So to your point, you're, you couldn't be more accurate. And I think this is, this is sad because all of that, those 10 things with some of my extra cartilage added, um, really just enable the adversary mm-hmm. tremendously. It just facilitates it. it. It gives them complete leverage to test and try and, and all that. And then the snake oil a little bit with some of the stuff that's being sold today. It really isn't, uh, and it's, I'm not knocking the entire vendor community out there because there are, there are people that meaningfully want this to work. And actually, you, me- you mesh together good tech with good talent, and it will. Mm-hmm. It's just that we're missing a lot of that talent to run some of the stuff that actually needs. It's, it's a F1 Ferrari and no Schumacher. Mm-hmm. I had uh, dinner with uh, Dan Gear once. Yeah. Um, he was a very prolific security guy in our industry. It's, he's got a couple of uh, wine liners that I just love. But one <laughs> of them, um, he was talking about uh, operating systems. Yeah. And he said, you know, when you first have a, a install on a laptop mm-hmm. and it's just sitting there and the laptop's closed. You, you know, what's on that. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything is known about that. The as second, there's no internet. Connect- okay. The yeah, second you put the, it, turn on the internet, open it up and press the power button and starts working. Yeah. You have no idea what's going on in that. And no one on earth knows what's going on in that thing. Mm-mm. No one. Totally right. Um, I think that is part of the problem in your half of the industry. Mm-hmm. Not so much my side, but definitely on your side. Like, well, now there's just some new DLL running and it's going to mm-hmm. do some random thing every 28 minutes for some reason. Yeah. And then it's going to cause some malware to be able to infect in this weird way. And my favorite line ever along those lines, which is going to be funny for people listening. Mm-hmm. We're good. We've got an air gapped network. Yeah, sure. Favorite one. <laughs> my favorite one, Arsenic. Because I'm like, Cool. I mean, I'm not trying to be snarky. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's pretty amazing. Um, does it get updated? Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> with the with the malware that you dragged in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Malware's your updater, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's unbelievable. What but there's mess. this misperception of things in many cases. I think that's the other thing is there's there's you brought up the fact that ten years ago people were more artisan like and and it's true. Mm-hmm. Um I I have not met in conversation recently a an IR professional that subscribes to the same methodologies that I knew the guys did do, you know, back at, at the Mandian era that sure. that I was part of in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Something happened. Something happened. I don't yeah. know what it was An actually. Explosion of the industry. I think 
a lot of commercialization. You yeah. know, there suddenly was this massive influx of cash, and that mm. meant that everyone was interested in it because there was money in it yeah. instead of it being devoted to it because it was something that they enjoy. Right. And as soon as you're there for the dollars, um, it's a quality lot easier. A lot goes easier down. to get lower quality. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the supply chain earlier. I think this is also a time to start talking about balkanization. So mm-hmm. um, we talked a, a little bit about this on your podcast as well, but I, I think it's worth doing here as well. I see the future um, and the uh, certain security experts that I talk to also see it the same way. I'm curious to see how you see it. The future is there's a Facebook for Italy. There's a Facebook for France. There's a pa- Facebook for Russia, et cetera. It's, you know, different company owns these things. Different sure. company manufactured it. Maybe some companies sold their code to it multiple times, but everyone's going to have their own social network. Everyone's going to have their own firewall manufacturer. Everyone's going to have their own cell phone manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to have their own search engines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you don't have it that way, you really are very much at risk of every one of these other countries deciding to come and attack you um, because they're the manufacturer. Right. So all they have to do is change the code ever so slightly. It's, it's funny because like a lot of people were like, you know, the Apple ecosystem, which I think is better than the Google for multiple reasons. Um, it, they're like, well, you know, some app can't do the bad thing. You know, it's a signal mm-hmm. for instance. So mm-hmm. like, it can't do blah, blah, blah. What do you mean it can't? Well, right now it can't, but mm-hmm. the second anyone chooses to push an update down from Apple, like, you know, they can sign it with whatever they want and it'll get on your phone and do whatever it wants. That's and right. Yeah, absolutely. They can read whatever data is on there. It's like, yeah, it's ephemeral until they decide it's not ephemeral. I think if, if you're serious about security and I think all of these, you know, the larger countries anyway are very serious about it. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to build everything themselves. Like where, where do you see that going? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I agree. Um, when the, when the uh, sanctions came about for Russia, um, I had a really interesting conversation with some geopoliticians that wanted some opinions uh, from a cyber perspective. Mm-hmm. And what I referenced was Iran. And I said, you know, when's the last time you guys were in Tehran? They're like, no, never. I'm like, all right, well, when you go to Tehran, even for me, it was, I don't know, over 10 years ago, I was staying in the hotel and the coffee mug said made in Iran and the table said made in Iran and the nightstand and the TV said made in Iran. Everything was made in Iran because they've been under that same pressurization and mm-hmm. restrictions it's a little, a little bit like the Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Nature finds a way kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It, they will. And now what's interesting about this and, and immediately leaping from the fact that that is inevitably the evolution of how it'll go, they will find a way, they will make things themselves, <clears throat> immediately makes the former incumbent's solution, whatever that may have been, the cloud provider that was global, that now is just simply Western a target. Mm-hmm. They don't need it. This is my this is my worry about Swift, the banking network that was you being used as leverage mm-hmm. with Russia. If you no longer if you no longer make it important to them, what compunction, what limitations do they have from attacking it now if they have no benefit for it anymore? Right. The only reason something doesn't get attacked broadly is because they're benefiting. The minute it's no longer of use to them, it's a Sun Tzu proverb. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend concept here. If I can take down something that effectively benefits my adversary, well, then I'll do it. You know, so I think that the balkanization concept is indeed likely, a like very likely scenario. 
The scary part about it is that it opens up the opportunity for all out war in a much broader sense because there's true compartmentalization and there's true fiefdoms and camps that now can kind of pillage and, and attack and strike each other much more, much more overtly than they do now. Mm-hmm. Because right now we'll take some of the cloud providers. Everybody around the world uses these cloud providers, generally speaking. I mean, within reason, you know, I mean, we know there's some countries that are walled gardened off from that, but if you start to really do it the way I think we're talking about this, now we're going to have to have defenses far more effective than they are today even. Mm-hmm. And we're already grappling with it where people are still attacking you that benefit from it. But imagine when there's no reason to not. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the future of where you think hacking is going. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I have one theory that I think is still early. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but I think it's going to happen. So you mentioned patching a little bit as one of the you know issues Web, web application firewall type patching. Yeah. But we also have like traditional patching as well. You know, just any kind of something that might be publicly accessible, like a firewall gets needs to get patched, et cetera. <clears throat> so I developed as a prototype a little piece of code. Um, it doesn't actually work, but it's more or less does everything I, I'm talking about here. It reads a new vulnerability as it comes in, you know, off the wire, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, either through access logs, email, RSS feeds, whatever, right? <clears throat> it has sees, okay, this thing looks like a command injection. It looks like a SQL injection or whatever. So it takes it, rips out the actual payload, replaces it with its own payload, mm. and then it already has a prior knowledge of existing targets that look like the kinds of things that it could attack. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say it's it's a known WordPress type vulnerability. It like says, you know, slash, you know, WP admin in, in the URL or something. Well, I already have a list of all the WordPress sites ahead of time. I know mm-hmm. where they all are or any ones that I'm curious to, to compromise, let's say. Maybe not everything. Maybe I'm very targeted. And then basically all it does is it turns it around and fires it back immediately at all the target lists that it currently has uh, situated. Now, it doesn't care about the response. It doesn't need anything back from it. It just needs to fire the payload off. Sure. And you don't need command and control. In fact, it turned out that the more I tried to write command and control, the more I realized it wasn't a good idea. It actually telegraph. Well, it was too slow. Mm. Uh, it added uh, multi-millisecond latency, um, and I was able to get my code to run in 0.02, I think, seconds, attack uh, 100 targets on the internet from uh, EC2 micro instance. So mm. a very, very tiny, free thing that Amazon yeah. will just give you. And so <clears throat> the cool part about that is I'm able to attack so quickly that patching literally could never work because let's say you have a patch come out and the exploit come out at the same time. The time it takes you to log into the machine Mm -hmm. is multi-second. And even if you programmatically make that happen, that's still a couple of hundred milliseconds. I can be on the box and still have almost a hundred milliseconds left over. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's just no way, let alone installing the patch and however long that takes sure. and let alone QAing it, making sure it works without taking down your environment. So I talked some to web application firewall vendors uh, and I said, okay, well, what would you do if I gave you the patch and, uh, and it's trying to attack you at the same time? Could you update your backplane uh, within the time necessary to get in front of this? And they said, no. Uh, the backplane is too slow. It would update. It was a multi-second update. Um, mm-hmm. So you'd be on there with seconds to spare. Mm-hmm. I don't think patching is going to work anymore, uh, which means we've got to completely rethink how we're doing um, sort of defense. And yeah. now, granted, this is early days, right? I don't think any adversaries are actually doing this. But I, I think 
cutting down the time from which a new O'Day, um, Zero Day, or um, yeah. just came out that day uh, type exploit um, hits the hits the world. And the time in which it is utilized, you know, it's it's right now it's about a day, sometimes less than that, mm-hmm. depending on as soon as it gets into a tool called Metasploit, it tends to speed up. I think it could get down from a day on average, let's say, down to hundredths of a millisecond. That's menacing. Right. That's menacing because when you cross-pollinate that, and I was going to ask you a little bit about the command and control, because the only reason you'd be interested in the command and control, obviously, is so you can alter its directives. Mm-hmm. If you can preload it with a very specific task, mm-hmm. kind of like Stuxnet eventually got to be where it was it had it was a it was a lone commando mm-hmm. without any real, you know, connectivity and it was but in re- early days, I don't know if you remember this, it did have it. Mm-hmm. It did have C2. Right. Uh, but then subsequent versions of it. So I, I do like where you're going with that because I think that the future is that there are these very well preloaded mm-hmm. tools. And plus, if your agenda is things like wipers, mm-hmm. there's there's a it's it's a it's a little mini suicide bomber. That's what it is. Yep. So I think that that's a terrifying concept because if you're facilitating access in milliseconds, the and for listeners, Arsync's the guy that opens the door, and I may be a guy that knows about the kind of grenade that gets thrown through that door, and all the other subsequent kinds of of, of flashbangs and everything else that can go in there. So if you're talking about milliseconds to open a door that can simply never be deadbolted fast enough, the combination of the two worlds is going to be horrific. That's exactly why you're here, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so another another version of this, which I am really surprised I've not seen this before, but so you you are in a, actually a perfect location to actually uh, enact such a thing. But a lot of times people will say, well, I'm going to rent out my botnet. So yeah. they rent out you know, a million nodes, let's say. Mm-hmm. And it usually just does one thing, sends out a bunch of spam or, you know, d- runs a distributed den- uh, denial of surface attack, just like you mentioned. But I don't fear the guy who wants a million bots. No. I fear the guy who says, I want that machine right there. Mm-hmm. I only want that one. I don't care about any of the others. That one running at that company, that's the one I'm after. Yeah. And the amount of money I'm willing to spend to get that one box compared to your millions, like it's... I'll pay a lot more because I know exactly what I'm getting. Right. I am really surprised no one's tried to broker individual specific compromises. Um, have, have you seen anything like that? Do you, do you feel like that's the way things are going? Um, a little bit. It's, mm-hmm. it's, there's effort in that because there's still a level of recon, you know, to, to do that. And then it, it's a little bit like the equivalency of a looting effort versus a cat burglar the skills of the cat burglar obviously are elegant and beautiful and you know it's like movies you know mm-hmm. they're wearing black and they cut through the window and they, yeah. you know it, it's really cool and and i think that those are the kinds of things that are um in the domain of extremely high net worth folks that know exactly what's going on a little bit like the movies sure it probably exists i don't think it gets broadly I don't think it's broadcast in such a way. It's a little bit like stealing a Ming vase out of some museum and then trying to broker it on eBay. Mm-hmm. No one knows what the hell that is, and they're not going to believe it's even real. Mm-hmm. So the credibility factor is tough with that. So you almost have to have the, the marketplace already established for it before the action's taken. And that's see the way I would know. say it is like uh, 
I'm, I'm buying it from you. I'd yeah. say, okay, here's the IP space that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Send me a request from one of those IPs to oh. prove that it's that it's yeah. real and you compromised it and then I'll pay you whatever. Sure. I mean, look, the, the ideal targets for things like this, like what you're talking about, are, are like pharma or defense. Because if you've got intellectual property, that's where that starts to become very, very interesting. Right. And so to answer your question a little bit, I have seen some of that, but it's been a little while, oddly enough, and it was primarily Chinese in origin. And it was primarily on universities and environments where there was intellectual property around things like quantum. Mm. That's quantum where a big deal. That's where I saw most of that, and it was very specific. Mm-hmm. And it was primarily around um, business email compromise of professorships and groups like that, looking for very specific access to servers, iCloud accounts, things like that, where there were. Sadly, papers that were completely not guarded. Mm -hmm. So funny enough, (laughs) the stuff that was extremely valuable to these groups really didn't have any security around it to begin with. Mm -hmm. So you and I have talked uh, a couple times about, I think this is going to be your last rodeo. Likely. Uh, I bet you probably said that the last time, though. I did. I did. (laughs) But I don't think it's any less important, Um, even Mm -hmm. if you might, you know, get your third wind in Hawaii and come back raging (laughs) after the next, want to do one more. um, I keep telling people, like, if I... If you ever hear me say I want to start another company, just please remind me how hard it was, uh, so I'll remember. (laughs) But in your case... um, Maybe you have a different experience. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be curious, what about this industry drives people away from it? I mm. mean, it, it's it's one thing to say, you know, we're we're hanging on, like both of us are hanging on. Right? Right. And I wouldn't say my best days are past me, but I'm, you know, this, it's just been a rough ride. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is all great for a reason. Um, I have a feeling you're feeling a similar sense that this industry has beat the crap out of you. Oh, yeah. Like, how how do you feel about it? I, I agree. And, you know, you're right. I say this. Um, my wife and I joke about it. She she claims I have pregnancy brain with this, mm-hmm. that I don't remember the pain of having that baby, mm-hmm. otherwise known as a company. Mm-hmm. Is it entre- entrepreneurial? What is it? Uh, entrepreneurial brain? Is that what it is? Uh, uh, maybe. There's got to be some word for it. We should coin it yeah, right we, now. Yeah, yeah. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I mean, and, and I, I will say that, that, you know, I remember distinctly, one of my, my challenges and my frustrations with the last company was that there was the ego of the industry, our snake, right? The level of like one-upmanship and all that was an issue then. Not as much anymore. That isn't as much of an issue as now. It's the lack, like you said, of education. I think you, I think you nailed it, which is that there's such an influx of cash. That part's alluring because it's kind of like, wow, you know, we should just go right back in and do this and we'll just, kill it. We'll mm-hmm. do it in a couple of years. Very much what my thought Ten was with this later. one. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I'm a little frustrated. I'm a little, um, you know, I'm disappointed that the artist artisanship, because like I'll take the egos now all day long, as long as they're capable. It's the idiocracy quality of people now that's going on. Sorry for the movie reference, but it's very it's appropriate. the third time it's come up on this podcast. No way. Yes. Well, good. <laughs> Keep checking those off. But that is what's really the most exhausting and frustrating. Part of why I feel more assured in my commentary about it being the last one I'm going to do. I say last one, probably meaning product firm. I think I'll, I'll do a service. I'll probably do a consultancy again, okay. uh, but very bespoke, meaning something I just want to do. I don't think it's going to be where I want to go and make a ton of money with it it's more of keep my mind active mm-hmm. um there's a lot to learn it just keeps yes, going 
Exactly. And that's where I think we could, well, we, sorry, speaking for you, but I think that's where someone like myself can stretch my legs a bit and look at the new stuff that's out there, you know, really interesting stuff around, um, uh, dare I say security for other completely other avenues of business, things like, like blockchain. I'm not talking about crypto. I'm talking about blockchain specifically being something of interest because eventually that will become an ecosystem for all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. a, a giant ledger like that in the sky. I mean, our snake, yep. is that not the dream for us back, you know, 10 years ago? Talk about ripe for attacks mm -hmm. and a variety of other things that can happen. So I find it interesting to kind of look at it um, as one of the areas. Um, high net worth individuals, I think, are fascinating uh, because they're targets and un unto themselves. Sure. Big corporate's been exhausting. Government's been exhausting. Yep. So I think that there's there's life ahead. It's just in a different format. Uh, <clears throat> I came up with the word. Mm -hmm. uh, startup amnesia. Oh, beautiful. Right. Well done. Uh, I, cause I think that's exactly, that's how I feel about it. Um, I started up at several companies now and I just kind of keep forgetting. I was like, <laughs> I'm getting so excited by the concept of yeah. my, of my idea or where things could go or how this could impact people. Like yeah. the cool thing about my company now is I know I'm going to have probably already impacted, you know, maybe a billion people or more yeah. with this tiny little startup. It's alluring. You know, it makes me want to keep going. Um, one thing that helps me go uh, past this point, it helps me push through is oftentimes I'll find myself being a little scared of technology, which I know sounds crazy. <laughs> like I, I mm. do with it all day long, but I'll go, Oh, that sounds daunting. A new thing to learn. And right. it's, it's, it's going to, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to have to learn this new language and I'm going to have to learn some new syntax or whatever. It's just enormous, enormous amount of work. Yeah. I'm never going to get ahead of it either. It's, it's just another thing out there that I got to go learn. And then I'll just say, screw it. I'll just take a day and I'll just power through and learn like four or five things I've been kind of in the back of my mind hearing a lot about and I'm mm -hmm. just, and then I learn it and now I have it and it's in the arsenal and and now I'm just that more, much more deadly or yeah. useful or whatever. Um, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with sort of the daily pressure of kind of constantly falling behind? And Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is the bane of the existence when you're trying to run an operation of a company that's supposed to be focused on an initial idea that was very exciting. But then four years later, mm -hmm. there's other things that we probably could be doing, or I could be doing that I'm not doing because mm -hmm. I'm trying to still foster some sort of scale and growth and everything that, you know, an investorship and everyone would expect of the company, what the money needs what the money needs, right. Which is counter to guys like us that want to expand our aperture and interests and, and, you know, Leonardo da Vinci things. I mean, money definitely is useful. Motivating. Extremely useful. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and motivating too, but I'm not that worried about my future in mm -hmm. terms of money. I'm by much more concerned, which I, you know, I realize is a huge point of privilege. Sure. <laughs> Just FYI. Yeah. But also I know that I'll be okay. Even if I lost every penny, sure. you know, I know that I would be able to dig my way out. Right. Um, just, by virtue of working hard and good ethic and also being useful, you know, yeah. having, having the knowledge. But the thing that I think pushes me away from the industry, probably almost more than anything else is the state sponsoredness of it. The whole oh, thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's very gross. Um, and I mean, I won't go into all these crazy stories, but I've got a number of very crazy stories, um, around that. And, and I, I think it's, it's from someone on the outside, you know, if you're just looking in and you're like, wow, that's so cool. It's a right. cloak and dagger. It's, it's alluring. So, it's very yeah. alluring, um, especially if you don't know what it's like. But after a while, it gets awful, like really, really terrible. Um, and it makes it hard to sleep at night sometimes. And it makes it, you know, um, 
you kind of have to rethink what you're doing and why you're doing it. Right. And are you really doing what you should be doing for you and your family? Or, you know? Yeah. Well, like how, how do you, how does that feel? Yeah, entirely. I mean, I, I think, you know, in, when we went through the litany of things that are, that are wrong with this industry and one of the areas that I brought up was that I'm having to go tell someone that they have issues that they don't want to hear about. They certainly don't want to buy from mm -hmm. me much. They don't want to hear about it, but much less pay for it. Sure. So all this effort for a very awkward conversation that usually ends poorly <laughs> and likely something to where no one wants to hear their babies ugly. No, no. <laughs> and so there's very little, um, very little victory on a daily basis, weekly, monthly basis with this, with this type of effort. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's really ultimately the end game. That's all that's, that's we're living for, mm -hmm. which is not a pleasant experience for m my team and I both. Right. So it's not just me, it's my entire company that, you know, these Spartan warriors with me doing this every day, day in and day out, because I've been able to foster a belief that this indeed has an outcome that's amazing because I've had one in the past. A lot of this is based on that. A lot of this faith and belief in me personally as the CEO and founder of a company is that, well, he did it before. So he probably knows what he's doing mm -hmm. and it probably will work again. The likelihood that it'll work again with him is higher than if I just find someone that has never, done, never it done it before. Yeah. And I can't promise them any of that. And then when it doesn't go according to my plan and it doesn't kind of take off in the way that I thought it would, it's, it's worrisome, you know, and, and you know, the burden of being a founder, it's, it's a terrifying place to be because not only do you have your own aspirations and goals that you're trying to manage and grapple and, you know, somewhat temper, you got your family on the other side that are entrepreneurial with you, whether they like it or not, poor things. Mm -hmm. And then you have your whole team that are now looking up to you going, you do know what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and then you may have some, if you're blessed with a board with investors, you've got blessed. that. Uh, is that, is that, like that what we're calling it now? Uh, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that we can laugh about that word. <laughs> yep. I think cursed is the correct word. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You didn't sense any of that sarcasm in mm -mm. my, yeah. Mm -mm. But I got to say that, that, um, that is extremely debilitating, you know, because there's no more of that kind of uh, early, excitement that, that I, I once had and fire. And I don't mean to sound so bleak because I look, I'm very grateful to the point of privilege. I yeah. mean, look, we're sitting here as founders of companies that have sold you multiple times, phenomenal experience so far. Sure. I'm in the throes of one that may very well have a wonderful uh, exit or who knows what. Mm -hmm. um, but, but going forward, you're right. I think that um, it's going to be heavily, heavily slanted toward, like you, you said, the new technology piece of this. I'm use, I use the idiocracy example. I can't go there now. I can't start limiting myself and, and going down into that world and, and sort of reducing down things so I can just fit into and shoehorn what I have to offer going forward. I'll just, I'll be miserable. Yeah. I know you're a hacker, but that doesn't count as the fourth reference to idiocracy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, sir. Uh, I know your tricks. <laughs> So tell me about your podcast. Um, yeah. I I have been listening. I'm a faithful listener. Thank you. Um, I think it's great. Um, Appreciate it. It's audio only for those listening. Uh, mm -hmm. But tell us a little starting bit. Starting to get stuff on YouTube now. Are you? Starting. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, so I'll get those that. up there and show you where to, where to look cool. at it. Cool, great. Yeah. Um, so why don't you tell us, like, how did you decide to do that? What yeah. we came up almost the exact same time, like yeah. within weeks of each other. So yeah, it's a great story. Yeah. Um, not, not overly exciting. I mean, we talked about Hitman, and we, you know, mm -hmm. podcast story is good. Yep. Um, I, 
had started, I, I did, I've never listened to podcasts before, admittedly. Um, so I'm not like some long-term listen, long-time listener, first-time creator kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Never. I mean, maybe loosely one or two over the years. Um, and then, you know, you can't ignore it. Podcasts seem like they're the new, the, the new media, the new method of marketing. You know, I thought, okay, well, I guess we should look into this as a company. So sure. frankly, it was originally a company motivated endeavor. I actually tasked someone in the company to go run with it. I said, okay, dig this up, figure out how to do it. Let's go create one probably for it. Okay. Someone had listened to a podcast before. (laughs) I thought I'd hope so. Right. I'm like, Hey, who's listening to podcasts right here? And I was like, how do we create one? And, um, variety of things never got done. And so in January of this year, I'm like, well, I guess I'll do it. Typical founder story. Right. I'll, I'll do it. That was my hubris as well. Right. (laughs) And I started looking into it. I started to listen to a few of them. Uh, Quite candidly, the first, I think, three or four, I'm like, this is awful. I don't know why people listen to this crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I found, then I found some good ones. Okay, I found okay. ones that actually, okay. I was like, oh, wow, this is actually not bad. I actually want to keep listening. So I was like, okay, I see now where this, you have to find your brand. Sure. And you have to find the style that maybe works for you. Of course. And uh, I originally started thinking, okay, well, I'll do this. And I, I couldn't get comfortable, no matter how hard I tried doing a podcast for the company. I was like, there's something wrong. There's fun, something fundamentally wrong with that. Because I'm not really a hyperbolic character. I don't like to showboat and big glossy teeth kind of like, you know, and sell the product every turn I can get, which is not great, but I just don't like doing that. I mean, if it, I'm one of these guys that I feel like if the product's good enough, it should sell itself, frankly. Why do I need to constantly, you know, why do I need to have it on the side of a bus? I'm telling you, you got to have it on the side of the bus, man. <laughs> I learned that, unfortunately. Yeah, such a true statement, my friend. So ultimately, what happened was I I chose to just make it a personal thing, and that's kind of where the naming convention of it came from. So the introverted iconoclast mm-hmm. was an interesting dichotomy and paradox, and a little bit of an oxymoron. I like kind the of alliteration as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Alliteration is a big one yes, for me. Yeah, and I am an introverted character, oddly enough. And and what was funny is a lot of my life. I've had to find ways to fake being an extrovert. Well, it's a persona that I've been able to manifest for my job. Works for you. Thank you. Yeah. But I'm really naturally not that way. I I tend to be very quiet. I like to be alone. Uh, You know, I'm very uh, introspective and I'm not suggesting extroverts are not introspective, but you get my point. But then I do want to, change the world. I want to have an impact. I want to, I want to be a change maker, which usually comes with ruffling feathers. Mm-hmm. And the introvert iconoclast was very much my conf, my conflicted personality of wanting to be a big change maker, but not wanting to ruffle feathers too much. Sure. Um, you saw how that's worked out for me. Mm-hmm. And um, the stories are a combination of my memoirs, effectively my life interstitially peppered with some interviews of people that I, I find interesting like yourself. And it's come along uh, really interestingly. It's still, you know, it's, it's an experiment is the best way for me to put it. I sure. didn't really follow anyone else's model. I just kind of went with what I thought was good. Mm-hmm. And so far it's been an interesting ride. It's going to evolve into what I have no idea. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I, I, it's interesting. Cause when you started, you're like, it's going to be here any minute. And when it came out, I'm like, Oh man, I can't wait. I, I literally <laughs> was on the beach in Maui listening to these and I went, through them. And I'm like, now this is good stuff. And it was so cool because you used to have an, you used to have a trailer at one point. I think it's gone. I'm no, not it's, sure. It's still there. Is it still there? Yeah, okay. It's Maybe it's kind of buried. Okay. I have to dig it up, yep. but it was cool because we hadn't talked to each other 
But what you said in the in the trailer was this isn't just going to be about our snake. <clears throat> Excuse me. No. Ironically, cybersecurity our snake, which this this Despite particular the name of the show, <laughs> right? And then ironically, this particular episode we did get into some little bit juice here, but but fundamentally, you wanted to get into geopolitics, you wanted to get into controversy, you wanted to get into things that were going to really kind of evoke. A Hopefully, lot of show the audience yeah. the kinds of conversations that happen behind closed doors. Hugely important because these are. I wouldn't say that the conversation we had uh, today was really any different than all the other conversations we had. No. Different, wor- different words maybe went different paths or whatever, but mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing the audience needs to hear. If they don't know that this stuff is happening out in the world, that's right. they're just missing a huge chunk of how things yeah. work under the hood. And Well, the smoke and mirrors are so, so strong. You know, you said, you, you brought this parallel up in the conversation we had with my podcast and now this one, the magician aspect of this. Mm-hmm. But it's now corporatizing that magical story so much so that it's becoming cellophane wrapped and plasticized, and it's 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 it. People have no idea what is going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think there's probably going to be some shock and awe with what we talked about. People not understanding the, why the hell companies wouldn't want to go and fix things. We didn't even get into the untenable nature of most things that just simply can't be fixed, like inf- critical infrastructure. And, and a lot of snake oil, too. There's, Ma- a lot, there's a lot of technology out there that people will sell and won't do anything, or will even do the wor- the opposite of what they yeah, want. Yeah, so exactly. Maybe get into that in some other time. But <clears throat> So where do people find you? Um, how do mm-hmm. they get in touch with you or your company and the, the podcast? Sure. Yeah. So I'm not like massive social media guy. I'm getting back into it. So I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Kareem Hijazi on LinkedIn. Can't miss me. I kind of have a uniform um, avatar or, or picture everywhere. A nice black and white. That's good. Very Rembrandt Branding. looking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then my podcast is on the usual suspects. It's on Apple and Spotify. It is the introverted iconoclast. I also have the domain, the introverted iconoclast.com. Good luck spelling it. Yeah. It's a mouthful. <laughs> you know, it's not that, you know, yes, it is. Um, well, but, they have to be a certain level of intelligence just to find you. So I, I, I kind of want to leave it like that cicada 3301. You know, if you can find my podcast, you win the next prize to yeah. get the next puzzle. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, those are the main areas. I do have an Instagram account for it as well. I think it's introverted icon. Um, same with Twitter. Twitter, that one is actually my name. It's Kareem Hijazi. Okay. Right. And those are the main areas. Well, Kareem, thank you so much for doing this. I know this is kind of a, a slog to hike all the way up to Austin yeah, it's a joy, Houston, man. but uh, I'm really meaning to catch it. up with you in person. This was Definitely. a perfect way to do it. Yeah. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Mm-hmm.